Part 4. Pride. The world is a maze without a centre. Become it, or be forever lost. Selenius Aulun, Selenius's Meditations, 25 PCE. Chapter 78. Lysander. A Visitor. It is time. After days of waiting for others to enact my will, the hour fast approaches for my own flesh to enter the fray. Glerastes has informed me that Darrow's departure is imminent, as is Atalantia's attack. Somewhere out beyond the mountains, her bombers fueled to deliver their payloads. It is now, or doomsday. The dinner is prepared, Dominus, Exeter says to me as I close the book of Shelley's poems and rise from the orchard bench. It is late afternoon, and the songbirds have begun to croon for night. Rising guards patrol the fringes of the estate, looking at the sky, not knowing that the attack will come from within. I smile at a mismatched pair of guards as I fall in step with Exeter along the gravel path back to the house's southern portico. The pale man gives no sign of his week's labour. He has been busy on my behalf. While it would have been easier to negotiate the compliance of Glerastis's wary loyalists in person instead of through a proxy, it would have exposed us to dangerous levels of scrutiny. I dare not tempt fate by playing more games than necessary with Darrow. Soon I'll be rid of the spike, until then the perfect libertine I have remained. The dining-table is set for two. Glerastes and I make idle banter of the predictable sort, but it is peculiar seeing him smiling across from me, when inside I know he is churning with fear and doubt. Neither my friend nor I have much appetite, so it is a relief when the servants take away the barely-touched remains of our dinner. Glerastes stands. I must return to the spaceport. Be a good boy and see me off. At the boarding stairs to his shuttle, I smile at the old man. You know what they say about you? I ask. My boy, you should know I haven't the faintest care. You found Heliopolis, a city for men, and made it a city for gods. He snorts, If there are gods, they are in brighter worlds than these. He has little appetite for banter. He knows the dangers of the path I have chosen to walk and he doubts me because the old do not remember the necessities of youth. They see only the years on our horizon to which they think we are entitled. But we are entitled only to the moment, and owe nothing to the future except that we follow our convictions. I am finally following mine. The desert taught me that the only path is forward. I left you a gift in your room, Clarestes says, something for the occasion. He lingers on the shuttle steps, unwilling to say farewell. He nods, sets a hand on my shoulder, contemplates a parting word, and then enters the shuttle. Night comes not soon enough. At seven o'clock, Exeter's ship takes him down to the city, along with most of the servants, who are concealed in the cargo hold for their rendezvous with our loyalists. A skeleton crew remains behind. The guards are none the wiser. They watch me. 
At eight o'clock, the clone programme Glorastes' loyalist greens cooked up hijacks the feed from my security spike and transmits falsified data back to them, showing that I am in the library reading. I cut it out of my shoulder with a small knife from the dresser. Then I sit on the edge of the bed and take the card off the smoked glass box that Glorastes left for me. The note is simple. This summons legions. Inside the box is a silver horn, inlaid with gods and goddesses and racing chariots with wild steeds pulling the sun. The Horn of Helios, which has begun every race in the Hippodrome since it was built. It is a priceless relic. I set it on the bed as I open a second, far larger container that conceals the grav boots, razor, and military hardware provided by the loyalists. I'm about to slip the grav boots on when a knock comes at the door. I frown as a servant's voice comes through the oak. You have a visitor, my liege. I open the door. A visitor? What the devil do you mean? Alexander our Arcos and his maid-servant are in the atrium demanding to see you, Dominus. Alexander? The timing could not be worse. I don't have time to wag jaws at the crown prince of the free legions as he thanks me for his deliverance. Tell him I am indisposed. He knows you are on house arrest. He can see you're in the library, Dominus. He looks at the equipment laid out on the bed. He will be suspicious if I send him away. That suspicion will lead to a cascade of consequences that may upturn the entire venture. I am supposed to be at the Hippodrome in ten minutes. With Glorastes in motion there is no secure way to alter the timetable. Damn it! Admit him into the library in two minutes. Tell him I am finishing a chapter. I shut the door. There's absolutely nothing to be done about the spike. I have no way of contacting the Greens. I hide the Loyalist razor in my boot and race to the library. I'm sweating by the time the door to the library bursts open, and Alexander waltzes in as if he owns the place. Behind him trails the child soldier, Rona. Darrow's niece gapes at all the books. I find her particularly offensive today. She wears her arms bare to show off the unnatural bolts that permit low colours to parody the blue mind sink with their vehicles. This condition, compounded by her colours' adverse disposition to disciplined warfare, creates anarchy in a single individual. A sort of dissociative mania, which I can see behind her eyes. A zealot, this one. I must tread carefully. This is where they keep the renegade libertines, in the library? Alexander asks, running his tongue along his new teeth. I hope it was an interesting chapter to keep us waiting, you tart. He greets me like a brother, wrapping me in a hug and slapping my back in a sort of thuggish display of camaraderie. You may have heard, he goes on, Departure is imminent, and I told Rona it would be a crime against culture to depart without a tour of the Lady Beatrice. It will likely be months before we're back again. Even the thought of the rising returning to claim Mercury sets my blood to a boil. What a splendid idea, I say, before making an apologetic face. But I fear I am rather indisposed at the moment. Told you we should have called ahead, Rona says. She smiles apologetically at me. Sorry, lad, entitlement is one habit the man can't break. 
"'Our book is hardly as interesting company as we are,' Alexander says. He grins with his new teeth. "'Fear not, good man. I know better than to insult local customs. I brought a bribe.' He tosses me a bottle and winks. "'I hear Arabians simply adore Venusian brandy.' Chapter 79 Darrow Bad Blood Fear stares at me through the glass. It does not seem as if he has moved since I resisted cutting off his hands. Hasn't talked a lick despite the cocktails, Screwface says from beside me. Neurological conditioning, I ask. If it is, it ain't like any I've ever seen. Atlas's side of the wall is blank but I feel his eyes on me. I move left, and they follow. He can sense us. Screwface believes it. I noticed that, too. Should we up the dosage? No. Darrow, we need to know when Atalantia will attack. She's in no hurry, I say. But if we kill him before we get him to my wife... I stop as I realize what I'm doing. It's always easier to plan on hope. If she's alive, she can crack him. When we get what's in there, we'll have a chance. Till then, let's not push our luck by melting his cerebellum. We're about to leave the cell behind when Atlas speaks. Peticabre forsemel, sedidum, si deprensus erispis irumabo. Quod si tertia furta molieris, ut poenam patiare et hanc et illam, pedicabris iruma baresque. What does it mean? Screwface asks. Fear is on the job. Come on! My family was full of pixies. Didn't ever bother with Latin. I sigh and translate. Thief! For first thieving shalt be swived, but an again arrested shalt be irumate, and shouldst attempt to plunder time the third, this and that penalty thou shalt endure, being both pedicate and irumate. I am going to kill that man, Screw says quietly. Get in line. Back in the mound, the final preparations for departure are underway. Despite Screwface's effective efforts against Atalantia's spirings, it is best to assume she still has agents within the city. Tomorrow's evacuation to the ships will come as a surprise to all but those within my inner circle. Until then, my army plays the part of occupying force. Patrols continue, garages rattle with industry, barracks swell with music and snoring and gambling. Yet something feels wrong. The Fear Knight's poem has haunted me. Did I miss something? To allay my concerns, I took a tour of the mountain fortifications for signs of Atalantia's forward elements after visiting Atlas. All was still. Too still. Thraxa and Harnassus think my ill ease to be general paranoia. Glerastes's work is completed. The Morning Star and the remaining ships are repaired for combat. Morale is high. My confidants dwell on the coming fray and debate our chances of slipping the noose. But in my quarters inside the mound, 
My mind roves restlessly as I inspect data packets from Atlas's interrogation, surveillance of known loyalists, and Glirasti's charge. Cato. The five-minute gap from his detour to the wine cellar is explainable, yet cloying. In secret, my men bugged the cellar after that surveillance failure and faulted it on interference from the Lady Beatrice's reactor. Anassus himself has vouched for the integrity of Clearastis's EMP. So why do I linger over this insubstantial creature's idle days? Is it simply the seeds of fear? He has done nothing suspicious, not even left the Lady Beatrice, yet something is off about Cato Au Vitruvius's nature, if not his actions. Perhaps it is latent sociopathic tendencies that set the hairs on my back standing on end. I watch him sit in the library reading his book and shift back through the moments where my greens flagged peculiar activity. Much is class-based misunderstanding. They divine malign intent from his reading selections and his ambivalence toward the names of the servants. False positives, perfectly in keeping with his nature. I should let it alone and not squander my time. But I find myself idiosyncratically flipping through his hours, unwilling to get out of my chair. I watch him walk the garden, laugh at old vids, converse with the guards, sketch idly the shadows of a lone flower, eat breakfast, yawn over evening drinks with Glirastes, retire to bed at a drunkard's hour. A knock comes at my door. I let the video continue playing and answer. Thraxa stands there with her hands behind her back. Did you eat dinner? Ration bars don't count. She produces two fish pies. Come on in. She tosses them on the table and looks around for plates. We're both just going to eat them all anyway, I say. She shrugs and plops down in a chair, digging into hers with a utility knife. She waves the knife at the hollow. That's a little creepy, watching the pixie sleep. If you're so fond of him, you should have gone with the kids. The kids? Alexander and Rona went up to the Beatrice not long ago. Why? Something about a gift. That troubles me. I wouldn't have stopped it. I have no valid reason. Yet Thraxa senses my unease. What's wrong? she asks. Something's not been sitting right, I say. There's something about him. Then let's bring him in. Arnassus says the MP is flawless, and we're jamming any signal that leaves the peninsula just as much as Atalantia is. If he's a spy, I don't know what the hell he's doing. She forks a piece of fish into her mouth. You want to talk about it? It? Your wife. My brother. Maybe the rest of my family. No. I watch her. Do you want to talk about it? No, not my bag. But it ain't fun, is it? No, it ain't fun. There's an indistinct murmur from the hollow. Wait. I fix on the hollow as Thraxa frowns. What's the matter? Quiet. I amplify the sound and replay the murmur Cato made as he slept. Did you hear that? I ask. 
sounds like something over all, truth over all, I say. I've heard that before. But when? When? I can't pin my finger on it until a slippery sensation works its way up my arm. I bolt upright and run to the door. Your pie, Thraxa calls after me. I stand over the science team as they shake their heads at my request for a DNA check. We've been under constant attack since we got to Mercury, sir. There's no DNA census without a re-upload from Skyhall, and we ran them against all the gold POWs. Run it against this. I thrust Sevro's trophy at them. The tech looks down at the bloody robes in confusion. Now! I pace behind the techs as they work. It does not take long. The computer beeps, and before I look up, I know the DNA is related. Oh, shit, I hear the tech say as I bolt out of the room so fast I send Thraxa tumbling over a chair. I call Screwface at full sprint. He answers, covering his yawn with his heliopolitan scarf, having just returned from a patrol in the mountains. Iron up, full pack. His face falls as he knows he failed. They're coming. They're coming. Next I call Harnassus. He answers peevishly from the morning star. Are you with Clearastius? His weariness vanishes. No, his shuttler's having maintenance difficulties. Tell him I want to speak with him in the hangar. Once he's away from the machine, stun him, strip him naked, scan him for embeds, and put him in a cell with a full century standing guard. No one is to speak with him until I get there. If he tries to touch anything unusual between this moment and then, shoot him in the head. Then order an evacuation of all support personnel to the ships. I want everyone except combat ready to go. I take a breath. Then get a particle beam pointed at the spirit of Faran and blow that EMP to hell. There's a pause. Copy that. What's what? Patching a pool. I use my master controls over my Harler's network as I run, cutting out Alexander and Rona. Colloway joins from the confines of his isolation chamber. Thraxa storms down the hall to link up with me. Harnassus joins as he walks a complaining Glerastes out to the hangar. When the rest of the pool has joined from all across Heliopolis, I inform them and my private horror becomes real. An Omega-level enemy asset has been discovered inside the city. Glerastes has flipped. That EMP is for us. I've ordered its destruction, but it will be coordinated with an outside assault. Prepare for heavy enemy contact. Attack is imminent. Should I call Rona and Alexander? Will it tip my enemy off? If I don't, he could take either of them hostage, or kill them if he hears us coming. I have to risk it and trust their discretion. Even then, if anyone could take down a single man, it's Alexander. I use my master command to turn on both of their cochlear implants. Rona is laughing and admiring the water colossus. Do not react. A howler strike team is on its way to your location. The man you are sitting across from is not named Cato Alvitruvius. He is Lysander Aulun. Wait for us. Do not engage him on your own. Chapter 80 Lysander, heir of Arcos When I first saw the Water Colossus, I thought nothing could be that big. 
Rona admires the ten-metre-tall model inside Glerastis's museum to himself. But then I thought I'd never seen anything as big as Tinos, or the Citadel of Light, or the Morning Star. That shit nearly dropped my jaw. There's always something bigger, ain't there? She is much like her name, which means Rough Island in ancient Gaelic. I doubt she knows how apt a name it is. The young Red wants to be inviting, but just can't help being jagged around the edges. Alexander does not notice the jaggedness one bit. Starlight filters through the glass dome, the light of certain stars amplified to cast columns of light over the models. From his recline on a bench, Alexander sips his sherry and gazes at the rough island as if she were the monument itself. Their unspoken tenderness seems already so frail to me. Before the ash rain it wouldn't have. Nothing is as big as the morning star, my good lady, except the ego of the valley I wrath, Alexander says, enjoying his role as tour guide. It seems his education stumbled during his house's sojourn from Mars to Io to Luna to Rebels. Even in my anxiousness to depart, I remind myself to be civil and correct none of his errors. It took seven years to build, dozens of asteroids, but most of its metal came from the mines of Mercury. Wrong. Gods, how long do they intend to loiter? I hide my vexation. My men will already be in motion. Glerastes preparing his program. I must get to the Hippodrome. But most galling of all, my two guests are becoming rude in their lingering. If this is what passes for Martian manners, I shudder to think of what Virginia has done to the Palatine. My cousin's enthusiasm for seeing me again has made it impossible to extract myself from their company. Something must be done, and soon. Yet a fresh variable rears its ugly head. I've unfortunately noticed Alexander no longer tongues his new teeth as he did when he arrived. From the mines here? No shit! Shipping fees must have put Octavia in her early grave, Rona says with a folksy whistle. Cost me half a month's pay just to send a kilogram of loot back to Mars. How am I supposed to get my cigars home? She glances at me with a grin. Raided the Votum Vault, I did. You're looking at the only purveyor of Heliopolitan cigars in all Aegea. Well, soon as we skip this rock and make like pups for home, that is. She downs her glass, leaving fingerprints all over the bulb. Darrow's stock indeed. Her other hand hangs idle at her side, no longer exhibiting the tick of playing with the leather thong of her side-arms holster. This, along with Alexander's diminished self-dentistry, has turned me cold. I probe with the mind's eye. Octavia made the people of Mars subsidise it, Alexander explains. She wanted the rim to build a flagship paid for by Mars, just to mock us, especially after Darrow purloined the Pax. Not exactly true, I say. Octavia commissioned it four years before the vanguard was stolen. She paid the Julii Trading Company the shipping fees, using the tariff revenues levied on Nero Augustus's helium exports from his mines, which your grandfather, Alexander, watched him steal from his sworn arch-governor. The rising plutocrats were willing beneficiaries of the society before they tired of it. In fact, I look at Rona. How many mines did your family own, Alexander? 
He smiles pleasantly back. Oh, far fewer than yours, I assume. I affect a yawn, and then resort to violence. I seize Rona's left wrist and jerk her toward me, so that my tight jab shatters her jaw. In the same moment I pull her slack body to me, strip her sidearm and put it to her temple. The tip of Alexander's whip stops taut, less than a centimetre from my right eye. He recalls it in a beautiful manoeuvre that has him poised for the falling leaf, a winding corkscrew of a downward slash. He shows remarkable mastery of one of the Willow Way's more complicated strikes by freezing halfway into the third motion. His eyes stare at the gun I hold to Rona's head. In the moment, there is no rage for me in my cousin's eyes, only fear for her. I do not want to shoot Alexander. I found no fault with him in the mountains, nor with his valour in the chase, nor his humble heroism at Tyche. But the man he serves is a plague, and he is just a noble symptom far too loyal for his own good. I point the gun at him, and let Rona fall unconscious to the floor. Loon, he says. Arcos, I see Lorne gifted you the willow after all. Bold of you to say my grandfather's name after what Octavia did to him. You recall, yes, how she had Lyleth Al-Faran saw through his spine from behind, like this. He slowly moves his blade back and forth. All my life I was compared to you. Cousin Lysander, perfect Lysander. He looks me up and down. You must be more than meets the eye. Put down the blade and get on your knees, I say. Perish the thought. He levels his blade at me. How about you pull that big iron from your boot and we settle who's the heir of Arcos? Who is your favourite poet? When he does not answer, I choose for him. Ye labour for your fall with your own hands, not by surprise, nor yet by stealth, but with clear eyes, knowing the thing ye do. He sneers at the gun. No honour. No time. I shoot Alexander in the head. Chapter 81 Darrow Dark Age The Lady Beatrice lies in darkness, except for the faint twinkling of lights through the windows of her west wing. My howlers land in force, Screwface taking a platoon through the top windows as I shoot a hole through the front door and thunder in with Thraxa and her warhammer. Loon! I shout. Come out, come out, you dumb little cur! Thraxa slams her hammer through a pillar. Come out and face the wee lass! There is no answer. No sound except the stomping of my howlers upstairs and the faint warbling from the rotating crystal orb in the foyer. Its fractal light casts white snowflakes on the stone floor as we rush into the home. There's a shout from the west wing. Gory hell, Thraxa mutters as we enter Glerastis' museum. I feel a tremor inside. There is a body on the floor. I stare down at it, and a maw of grief opens inside. The boy who entered my life as an arrogant lancer and through hardship became hero to an army, lies in a pool of his own blood. He has been mutilated, 
Half his head is missing. Sightless eyes stare at the ceiling, mouth half open in surprise, as if he were wondering, really? Like this? There's a low moan. Rona limps from behind a model of the water colossus. Her face is nearly unrecognizable, her jaw shattered. She falls to her knees in Alexander's blood. Her scream tears me to tatters. How many years did they stand apart from each other behind me? How many precious few moments were they honest with each other? They were robbed of so much joy. Promised it, then robbed again. Rona, where is he? I whisper. Rona, where is Loon? She looks up at me with empty eyes and points up. I motion a howler forward. Get her to the morning star. Rona thrashes as the howler manhandles her off Alexander and drags her to the door. The house rumbles. Weapons fire upstairs from Screwface's platoon. His voice crackles through. Eyes on. Shit. Dagger lodged a bullet. Shoot. Homing mines on R6. Something detonates. We leap to the second level, bypassing the stairs. Screwface and his men fire down a hallway. Two howlers are down. There's a sucking sound. Screwface's platoon scatters, taking cover as a quarter of the house disintegrates. My armor absorbs the shockwave, but the wall does not. I stand as debris and dust swirl around me. A shape moves through a distant room and then disappears upward. Thraxa bursts after him. He's got boots! Screwface shouts. The pack follows. Clearing the debris cloud, my optics pick up a tiny shape racing for the city at incredible velocity. New boots. His lead is already half a kilometer. We rocket off in pursuit. I radio other elements held back from the evacuation to cut him off. Response teams rise from distant skyscrapers. Rip wings drop from the flyer lair. My army constricts around him. He banks left to avoid running into a rat legion squad from the mound. Mini-missiles streak after him and detonate against the sides of skyscrapers as he threads his way through the business district. Glass rains down on us as we follow in his wake. We bank left to cut him off when he passes through the eye of a circular tower. He sees our intent and shoots straight upward, firing a hole through the glass side of the building. He disappears inside. We hover around the building, forming a perimeter. I send four howlers in after him. Then I understand a screwface banks down. Ground floor, I bark. Thraxa and sixteen others rip downward with me, just as glass explodes outward from the second floor. He took a grav lift shaft down. I fire my pulse fist on full auto. Screwface flies underneath, taking slow aim. Chunks of concrete erupt as Loon weaves through our fire and takes off through a canyon of mercantile buildings, heading north. Damn, kid can fly, Thraxa mutters. Thank Cassius, the pretty bastard, Screwface curses. Is he here too? I pray not, if he's gone over. As Lysander gains altitude, I spare a look south of the city to the spaceport. The torch ship I ordered to destroy the spirit lowers itself midway up the Morning Star's hull to gain a firing solution. Too slow. Too damn slow. 
Just blow that EMP to hell. I radio them to shoot through the morning star. Loon's lead has diminished. We're barely 200 meters behind him, close enough to see him looking back over his shoulder at us with the naked eye. He wears light armor and a heavy old helmet. What the? Screwface mutters. Boss, nine o'clock. Lysander's face blooms in the skyline. A broadcast to all the hollow screens. Not just that. Inside a passing skyscraper, the rooms fill with sudden illumination. The whole city glows with his message. Somehow, he hard-hacked the feed. I don't listen to his words. He'll be exhorting them to arms, as he watched me do on Phobos so many years ago. The attack will come from the inside first. He's heading for the prisoner camp in the shadow of the Hippodrome. Fireballs bloom around the city camp, not at the guard towers with their anti-personnel cannons or at the tank garages, but along the walls. Through the billowing smoke, men on fire flail in chaotic dances. From the sky they look like lightning bugs in fog. More explosions go off across the city, not one near the heavily defended shield generator. My targeting system registers a lock on Loon's Gravboot's thermal signature, and I fire my six mini-missiles. Vapor trails scar the air between us as they reel him in. Then he seems to divide, impossibly. Bailed out, Screwface calls. Lysander's Gravboot's carry on without him as he falls barefoot from the sky. The missiles streak after the boots, and detonate with a white flash. Lysander plummets downward, end over end, before crashing into the central pool of the water gardens. We overshoot him, and by the time we bank around, it is too late. Warning lights appear on my hollow display, indicating rapidly changing electric and magnetic fields. A black pupil spawns at the center of the morning star as the lights of the ships wink out. Dark is the tide that rolls over the spaceport in the city, swallowing the phalanxes of tanks and Drakenjaegers upon the field of Phaethion. It plunges the office spires, the hippodrome, the mound, and the great shield generators into darkness. Above, the iridescent shield that protected us against Atalantia flickers, and then goes off. The glittering cloak of flyers that drifted over the city glitters no more, and the ships become indistinct shadows as they plummet from the sky. We fall with them. Chapter 82 Lysander This Summons Legions Heliopolis, City of the Sun, lies in darkness. Darrow and his howlers disappear from the sky as their grav boots fail and they plummet down into shadows. Ships crash across the skyline without the dignity of balls of fire or white flashes from overloading reactors. I swim to the edge of the pool and jump down to the next level of the fountain, nearly losing hold of the horn of Helios as I drop down. There's a terrific crash from above, as a troop carrier collides with the head of Poseidon, breaking off his right ear and tearing the carrier in two. One piece slams down into the topmost pool plate. The second spins through the air, passing less than ten meters over my head. Half a hundred men are still strapped into their seats, 
Their faces pass close enough I can see the acne on a brown's forehead before they smash into a building below. Water rains down on me. I look up. Over my head the topmost plate of the gardens is cracking under the weight of the larger half of the carrier. I jump from the pool to the one beneath just as the topmost plate gives way, and a hundred tons of marble and ship smash down on the pool beneath. It becomes an avalanche of stone and water and ship collapsing each plate, gaining on me as I jump frantically down the monument. I hit the ground level of the plaza and roll, barely outracing the debris that crashes down behind me. Chunks of rock the size of horses roll across the plaza, crumpling the bodies of bystanders and splintering trees. Something hits me hard in the back of the skull, and I go sprawling. Blood leaks down my back when I regain my feet. Dust billows all around. I search until I find the horn. Then I run. Somehow, running in the darkness through the bedlam, I find the Via Triumphia. Rising legionnaires shout to one another in the black streets. I jump, grab the lip of a low wall and scramble up till I'm on the rooftops. There I strip open my rucksack and change into lightweight boots. I wrap the loyalist razor around my left arm and try Alexander's better-crafted blade. Its response to my touch is exemplary. The whip cracks as it lashes out to wrap around the metal support of an overhead solar array. I swing out across the gaps between the roofs and toggle the razor into a blade. It releases as it cuts through the array and I land on the other side. More arrays fall behind me as I swing north over the dark streets with the horn of Helios. The mayhem of the prison break is illuminated in stuttered flashes of gunfire. With electricity flowing, those prisoners taken in the Battle of the Ladan were at the mercy of the Rising. Now gold and obsidian athletes scale the walls and tear their low-colour guards to ribbons with their bare hands. I keep well clear. I can't mobilise them in the chaos on foot. Exeter and Glerastes' servants will have laid the charges on the pen housing my Praetorians. They may already be underway. I'm the laggard here. I vault another roof, almost impaling myself on a clothesline pole as I head breakneck for the Hippodrome. I was meant to land in the centre of the arena where loyalists would be waiting, but Alexander ruined my timing and jeopardised my initiative. Darrow was in pulse armour. The lack of electrical assistance will paralyse the weaker howlers under the armour's weight, but not soldiers like Darrow or Thraxa. He'll wake in some arcade or upon some roof, surrounded by chaos from which no man could possibly salvage a victory. But Darrow built his legend on such moments. The EMP wave went farther than expected. I can't see the lights of Atalantia's ships in orbit. How far did it go on the ground? How long till she moves more elements in? Given time, Darrow will summon some martial necromancy. So when I come south for his army, it must be with shock and awe. I use a market stall awning to slow my descent as I swing from the rooftops down to ground level and weave through dead automobiles outside the Hippodrome. Loon! I shout as I approach the main pedestrian entry arch at a run. Invictus! someone replies. A dozen mid-colour loyalists with gas-powered rifles step out of the shadows. They wave me to the left, into an arcade beneath the stadium seats, 
where concessions are sold and bets made on race day. Gunpowder weapons crackle in the distance. I find the door to the subterranean stables unlocked. Two rising sentries lie outside it with holes in their heads. A wall of horse stench hits my nose as I burst from the stairwell into the stables. Lit by the eerie flames of torches, one of Glirastasi's servants waits for me with a dozen obsidian stable hands in the proud race-day livery of House Votum. Hail Loon, they say, falling to their knees on the straw-strewn floor. They rise again, staring at me in the low light to tend the anxious herd of saddled sunbloods. None but obsidians could wrangle such intrepid beasts. I search their eyes. They are barely kin with those who follow Sephi. They know no other life but Mercury, no life but these horses, no life but service. I salute them as they fulfill their noble task, and extend my arms for the loyalists to buckle the waiting suit of armour to me. It is old gear, circuits long dead, bone white with a crude crescent welded onto the front and back. Glirastes is incorrigible. So you're Cicero's blood of empire, I say to the horse, set out before the rest. For once, Cicero was not hyperbolic. It is as if every horse I have seen before this day, even Atalantia's prized creatures, were nothing more than early drafts of this ultimate creation. He towers over me, clearing twenty-five hands at the withers, with still more muscled shoulder to measure. His hooves are the size of dinner plates, his mane as brilliant an orange as his irises, his white coat dappled steel-grey, haughty eyes watch me. He bucks his head as I approach, lifting the two obsidian stable hands off their feet. When they wrangle him back down, I cut my hand and wave the blood over his nose so he can smell it. He tilts his head, his eyes searching mine. I bring my nose to his, as is the dangerous custom with sunbloods. He could snap off my face with ease, but I keep my voice soothing, and he lets me stroke his muzzle. With a snort he bends his front legs in obeisance. The obsidians cheer. They had wondered if the horse would find me worthy. Blood knows blood, my liege, their old stablemaster rumbles. He will bear you over a sea of slaves. The ramp used by charioteers to enter the Hippodrome slams down in a cloud of dust. Blood of Empire has been here before, even if I have not. His hooves pour the sand, impatient for the glory to which he has become entitled. It has been years since I have ridden a horse, and in all of human history how many have graced the back of such a terrible prize as this? I fear disgracing this king of horses more than I do the coming violence. With an intake of breath, I grip the horn of Helios and dig my heels into his sides. It is like riding lightning. The ramp blurs past underneath. Suddenly we are upon the surface of the Hippodrome. No sea of faces awaits us, no adulation. Only a black sky, the empty stadium, and a ragged band of men jogging across the sand in tattered uniforms, Roan and Kalindora at their lead. The loyalists who led the attack on the Republic prison led them here for me. The Praetorians and Kalindora are shocked to find me alive. I spare no time for pleasantries, as I circle them atop blood of empire. 
Upon Luna, upon Earth, upon Mars, they say that the Praetorian Guard is dead, I shout, that they have faded into the moor of history like morning fog over the sea, that nothing remains but the memory of the giants that once walked the world. Rome T. Flavinius, I cry, before all things, what are the Praetorian Guard? Equestrians, he bellows, and what is your duty? To protect the blood of Loon. Will you ride with me today, Rome T. Flavinius? With honour, my liege. Are you a memory? I ask the Praetorians as blood continues to canter around them. No. Are you giants? Yes. Will you ride with me today? For the glory of your forebearers, for the resurrection of the society, for the honour of the guard, will you ride with me? Yes, they roar. Only Kalindora remains silent. I take the horn of Helios from the saddle and blow a sonorous note, and from the belly of the Hippodrome the herd of Votum, pride of Heliopolis, stampedes upward under a black sky. The stable hands bear up crates of weapons provided by the loyalists, and when my Praetorians are mounted, Kalindora walks up beside me with a look of disapproval. The left sleeve of her prisoner jumpsuit hangs slack, the arm darrow cut off, rotting in the desert. But her sword-arm looks restless. "'What a hunger for blood you have acquired in the desert,' she says. "'Did you survive that sandstorm just to die in these streets? "'If we wait for Atalantia, we will be at her mercy. "'Is that why you brought me the Praetorians?' "'She does not reply. "'He will win whose army is animated by the same spirit throughout its ranks. "'The society needs victory, not a slaughter.' Too long of the rabble had a monopoly on glory. Today we reclaim it. I would have the love knight at my side as we do. I extend the loyalist razor to her. With a growing smile, she reaches forward. Chapter 83 Darrow Hazard Bedlam Thump, thump distant screams and rage, the shrieking of metal on metal. In the darkness, flashes of flailing limbs, gnashing teeth, screaming mouths. I watch the violence painted in fragmented impressionist brushstrokes. My armor is dead, my helmet's internal screen black. Vision now constricted to the narrow duroglass emergency slits in the helmet's eyes. Beyond my helmet, is frenzy. They beat on my armour with fists, hammers, blocks of masonry, fence poles, and all manner of improvised urban weaponry. They fell on me after I crashed through a storefront and struggled up from the debris, my legs snarled by electrical wires. First it was two, then two became a mob. Now I cannot move for the mound of humanity atop me. They besiege the Skiantas made armour with anything they can find. A brown street cleaner sits on my chest, hammering a long piece of rebar into the joints with a chunk of masonry, desperate for my blood. A silver kicks at my groin till his foot breaks, and he hobbles away. A grey sits on my arm, trying to pry open my bald gauntlet so he can break my fingers one by one. Two old red women pin my head between them and start hammering at the eye holes with improvised chisels as they fumble for the emergency switch. They find it, but I've already locked it. Fortunately, 
The armor is a tough nut to crack. I can only imagine they're doing the same to my downed men all over Heliopolis. Lysander has woken the sleeping giant that we kept alive with our meds. But beyond the screaming mob, the sky is black and empty of Atalantia's ships. Did the EMP reach all the way to orbit? I see no dreadnought lights above. My ships will be dead at the spaceport, our shield down. This is the end, but I refuse to let the mob swallow me like it did my wife. The mob clears except for those holding me down, while several low colors stagger over with a block of masonry the size of a man. They hold it over my head and drop it. A ringing fills my ears from the internal concussion. The reinforced war helm dents but does not break. They get clever and drag me toward the local park, making a hideous parade, where they hold me down before a tall, headless statue of a votum ancestor. They tie electrical cables around my arms and legs, and four teams pull my body taut as the rest of them loop the cable around the neck of the statue and begin to heave. It rocks on its pedestal, each heave bringing it closer and closer to its tipping point, after which several tons of marble will fall and test the metalworking of Martian forges. I wait as the four teams on my limbs strain and sweat, pulling against what they think is my strength, but is actually the reinforced skeleton of the armor. They waste their effort. I save mine for one desperate gambit. When the statue finally tips forward with a cheer from the mob, I roar and jerk as hard as I can with my right leg and right arm. The sudden force sends the teams of men stumbling forward impossibly off balance. Then I see why. Several young Heliopolitan Reds smash into them from behind, knocking them off their feet. Still, they don't let go of the line. In a sudden explosion of pure force, the muscles of my right leg and right arm pull for everything they're worth against the teams. They're jolted forward even as the men on the left keep pulling, helping me drag them into the path of the teetering statue. The timing is almost comedic. Several tons of stone make wet, boneless sacks of men. The teams on the left stop pulling, suddenly appalled by the sight of pulverized men and the bath of gore it entails. It is nothing to me. I unravel myself and stand in the dead, heavy armor. That they are not the same mob that butchered Daxo and mutilated my wife does not matter. I kill them all. The brown street cleaner rushes for me with this piece of rebar. My punch is slowed by the weight of my unpowered armor, but not by much. And I am still the war god Mickey carved, using all his infernal devices. I need no razor for this mindless dreck. This man is tiny. My metal fist collapses the side of his skull and shatters vertebrae. I lift the silver who kicked my groin by his throat and squeeze until I feel spine. I shatter a man's femur with a stomp and collapse his sternum into his heart as I march over him to break a woman's jaw. Rib cages crackle under armored boots like twigs as I tread through them in systematic slaughter. As a mob, they were a single organism. In fear, they divide, 
in death. They become lonely as I weave them into my twitching meat carpet. When all have fled or died, there is no one left to kill but a convulsing silver boy who huddles by what remains of his father underneath the statue. One sight of his wide eyes and slack jaw and desperate begging stops me like a wall. Seeing myself through his eyes, I am disgusted. So I wheel away, back into my world. The Reds who came to my aid stand watching me. There are six of the sun-baked laborers, not a one older than twenty. They stand with their fists in a salute. I open an external pouch manually and find the helm key. I insert it into the collar until a latch pops. I roll back the wolf's head helm and suck down the fresh air. The young reds stare up at me. They might have thought they recognized my armor before, but now they see my face and they take a step back in fear. I lost my razor on the rooftops. Find it. By the time the skinniest of them returns with my sling blade in his trembling hands, another crowd has formed down the street. They are trying to decide whether it's worth rushing me. I take the blade from the boy. They see its shape. They run. I nod to the red and, weighed down by forty kilos of dead armor, rush to find my men. My miracle has turned into bedlam. Heliopolis is in chaos. Screams drift over the city. The streets are pitch dark. Gunshots crackle from conventional arms. Down ships smolder and send black clouds of smoke twirling up into the darkness. Bands of citizens armed with improvised weapons answer Loon's call and begin to rove the streets, dragging sympathizers from their doorways to stab metal in their guts or cave their heads in with rocks. A band of rubble-armed Heliopolitan high-colors eyes me down a boulevard before carrying on, looking for easier kills. Each street is a new horror. I watch from a stone balcony looking down into an arcade as one of my citizen outreach patrols is cornered by a mob. With their pulse rifles dead, they have only their long utility knives to protect them. The mob keeps their distance and stones them to death before I can find a way down. I encounter bands of my men and frantic stragglers in the streets. Six have conventional weapons. By the empty magazine pouches, I see they've been using them. Most stragglers come from down ships or local strongpoints. Panic grips the army. When they hold their ground, armies suffer, but when they retreat hysterically, they die. We can't all retreat at the same time. Guessing Lysander's force, when it comes, will cut off my two million support troopers billeted in the city, I order a red centurion to send runners to the other strong points and tell them to marshal at the water plaza. I follow the directions of a medicus who says he saw the howlers forming up in a square nearby. Before I make it there, I'm drawn by the glow of a fire in the mouth of an alleyway. Turning the corner, I find a gang of high-color youths standing over someone in armor, dumping mechanical oil on the blaze they've set. They take off running when they see me. I look around the alley for something to put out the blaze. Shouting comes from the street. Three white fleet pilots, bleeding from a crash landing, tear around the corner, chased by a dozen men with clubs and a young gold with his heirloom family razor.
They skid to a stop as they see me standing there covered in blood. I pull my razor, and they run. They'll find more of my men, so I hunt them down. In the armor, I'm too slow to catch the gold and a red, but I kill the rest from behind. The pilots have put out the blaze by the time I return. I brush the sand they piled on Thrax's armor and twist the hidden emergency release. She's not breathing. The flames would have prevented oxygen from entering her helmet. I perform mouth to mouth until she gasps against me. I'm prime, she says, eyes still wild. I'm prime, get off! She sits up in a daze and looks around at the darkness in ill temper. That little odious shit! The ships? Dead. Seems the EMP hit orbit, too. No telling the range. I'll wring that overbred prat's neck. We gotta find him first. I help her to her feet, and she staggers with the pilots and me to the square. We find Screwface and most of the other howlers giving orders to several thousand infantry from a dozen different legions. Boss! Screwface shouts over the chaos. He rushes to me. What's what? I ask as Thraxer helps me roll open my helmet. Hazard Bedlam, he says. Whole city looks like. Ships too. Strong points are solid, but there's shuttles down all over the city. We got half the pack looking for you. Been sending out teams of them and bringing the wounded back here. He nods to the wounded at the far side of the market as the rest of the howlers form a semicircle around me. For a moment, I feel as if I am back at the Institute, though of their number only Screwface still has the stink of dead horse about him. Not for the first time, I'm thankful for my peculiar education. I know what to do when the lights go out. The city is lost, but looks like the EMP hit orbit too, I tell them. It'll be hours before those dreadnoughts are back online. The fact that the skies are empty means her ground forces got hit, given the range. She'll have to bring her other ships from Picket or Farside to send armor, but once it comes, she'll have 2,000 years of tech on us. Then it's game over. We have to get as many men out of the city and into the mountains as we can before Atalantia brings those ships around. We have far less than an hour. I sketch a quick map of the city and the dirt with my sling blade, making triangles for armories holding conventional weapons. They crowd to see it better in the gloom. I draw a circle for the Hippodrome to the northeast. Lysander knew the EMP range. If he were practical, he'd hold for reinforcements. But he's going for glory. He'll try to take the city while Atalantia is knocked out. He landed here. I draw a rectangle to the south for the water plaza. The POWs were held here. I draw an X west of the Hippodrome north of us. Soon we'll have several hundred thousand veteran troops pouring south with unknown armaments. I mark several circles five kilometers south of the Hippodrome, two south of us. These are our support barracks and administrative offices. They have not yet been evacuated. I sent runners to tell them to move south en masse, the fleet is dead, so they'll be heading for the mountain tunnels. They are hackers, medici, clerks, engineers, orderlies. Those prisoners are iron leopards and twenty fulminata, some of the toughest sons of bitches in the corps. With no tech, those obsidians and golds will be murder machines. We will not let them catch our friends. They've held us up, 
Now we get their backs. Six main boulevards lead south. We will barricade them and hold the line here. I draw a line across the sand south of the water plaza. X. On that line, what remains of my infantry in the city will die to buy the rest time. The strong points have gunpowder weapons and grenades, but only enough for one man in ten. Give them to the grey and red snipers. All guns should be on the rooftops. Expect the golds to be running the roofs, so fortify your men the best you can between the plazas, and give them melee support. Remember, they can jump streets. Use your Dark Age training. This isn't the first time gear's been down. You fight a gold alone, you die. Fight together. I give a boulevard apiece to four different howlers, putting Screwface on the right flank, nearest the tunnels and farthest from the mound. And what about you, boss? he asks. I put my finger in the centre of the map at the water gardens. Thraxa and I will hold the Via Triumphia. Lysander is too young to go anywhere else. If he wants to make a name for himself slaughtering my men, he has to go through me. If your line breaks, do not head for the tunnels. It's too far. Their goals will run you down. Retreat to the mound. We'll make our stand there. I look into their faces. Not a man or woman amongst them expects to survive the hour. But as the waiting has ended, so too has the fear. Not one quibbles or shies from duty. I could not be prouder. If I do not see you at the mound, I will meet you in the vale. Good speed. I grab Screwface as the rest disperse. Be safe. He just laughs. Legion! Thraxa roars. All across the market, the infantry slam their heels together and raise their fists as we jog past. Hail Libertas! Hail Reaper! Chapter 84 Darrow Meat Straw Fragments of scattered legions join my procession as we rush to secure the Via Triumphia, swelling our numbers to upwards of 20,000, if I had to guess. 5,000 join us from the district's strong point, bearing crates of gunpowder weapons, which are dispersed to our snipers and riflemen. We have 600 working guns in total, 15 gas-powered grenade launchers. Though they are little more than clubs now, many cling to the energy weapons that never made them equal to goals on the killing field, but at least gave them a chance. Conventional rounds just don't pack the same punch. To give our men pole arms, we hew down fences and signposts with our razors as we pass. Another swell of men come from the now useless artillery batteries. Braxa waves to a little pink girl who fogs her apartment's window as she watches us. We have failed her, like we failed those red boys who came to my aid. Soon they will know the mines, and she will be returned to the gardens, where she will know only the pleasure of others. And one day think of her childhood when the rising came as little more than a fantasy. We make it to the choke point just as scouts from Lysander's force reach the rooftops on the other side of the water plaza. Through the legs of the mighty statue of Poseidon, I see them moving roof to roof. The fastest have already summited the stone wreckage of Poseidon's fallen plates. They double back to report our movements as our snipers start picking them off. 
So he is pushing, Praxa says. That unctuous twat. Why wouldn't he just wait for armor? He wants to make a name for himself in slaughter, I say. I thought better of that boy. Of course you did. Severo was right. Should have ended the line in the moor. Together we look north. The cityscape lies in darkness. The hippodrome like the bent head of a shadowy giant. Through the roots of those buildings, Lysander's army will be moving south. The golds rushing ahead for glory and revenge. No doubt thinking our humane treatment of their radiation sickness to be some kind of genetic moral weakness on our part. The obsidians won't be far behind. And then, a sea of veteran grey killers from the shores of Venus, the furnace of Mercury, the old lands of Earth, the megahoods of Luna, and even the highlands of my home. All coming to kill my men. Should we not have fed them? Should we not have healed them? The water plaza itself is a kilometre by kilometre square of white marble, in the centre of which Poseidon stands over whitewashed sandstone and flowering sun blossom trees. The fallen plates make a stack of rubble to the north, but between Poseidon's legs the plaza is flat and open. The Via Triumphia encircles the water gardens in a roundabout littered with dead vehicles. I send snipers into the buildings on the southern edge of the plaza and on the rooftops, putting my howler snipers in two stone bell towers and atop a triumphal arch. Gunshots crackle as they continue picking off loon scouts. I see the men of our adjacent force climbing the rooftops to the east. A thin line of resistance forms across Heliopolis. Far to the west, gunfire echoes. Screwface is already under assault. Praxa says, if Loon masses there, we'll be flanked. He won't. I want you on the roof. She looks at our few golds and obsidians. You need me as a bulwark to hold the line. We're not going to be able to hold it, I say. But that boy out there can rally the whole bloody damn system behind him if we let him become a hero. We're here to kill him. I shout at a group of three rat legion snipers, the reds bob up to me like jackrabbits. You any good? I ask them. The dourest of them answers first. It's our calling, sir. I take the gas rifles I reserved in case we ran into more howler snipers. The three men drop their improvised weapons and cradle the guns like diamonds. I toss them the armor-piercing magazines. There are sixty-six bullets in these magazines. All sixty-six are for loon. I point to the three windows. I want you there, there, and there. Expect snipers. Do not reveal your position, not for any reason, until you have them in your sights. Do you understand? Do you know what he looks like? Prax asks. They nod. His face was on the broadcast before the EMP, the handsome one says in the same accent. Two of them even look alike. You all brothers? I ask. Yes, sir. If this goes tits up, use the roofs to get to the mound. Bag me a loon. They take off. Thraxus stares across the plaza. I put a hand on her shoulder. If they don't drop him, crush his skull on the way down. Got it. She jogs off. Blood sprinkles down from above. I look up and see a man falling from a rooftop. 
a centurion shouts a warning for enemy snipers. Where the hell do they get gunpowder? Someone shouts. Where else but from the Heliopolitans? Muzzles flash on northern rooftops. As the sniper duel rages, the golds and obsidians help me drag abandoned ground transports and civilian hovercraft just shy of the southern mouth of the Triumphia, where it exits the plaza. We've blocked only half of the fifty-meter-wide artery when a spotter calls to Thraxa on a rooftop, and she calls down to me. Enemy cavalry spotted! I look to the air instinctively. It is empty. And then I hear the thunder on the ground. My insides twist. He's emptied the stables. The last time I heard hoofbeats and felt anxiety was nearly sixteen years ago. The oceanic sound of an army shouting with one voice drifts from the northern city. I can barely make out the words. Invictus! Per ordo! Form up! I bellow. Form up! To me! To me! Reds to the roofs! Reds to the roofs! Thraxa! As the Reds rush up the stairwells along the Triumphia, Thraxa peers down at me. Let them hit, then fall on! Red rain! She understands what I mean, and ducks as a fusillade of enemy fire chews into the facades of the buildings. The howlers in the bell tower are gone, killed already. Long shadows sprint along the rooftops west and east of the plaza, hurtling six-meter-wide streets as easy as children hop over brooks. Some are shot mid-leap and spin down between the buildings, but in a world without electricity, the peerless guard are kings. They clash into my rooftop elements along our flanks. The sea of voices is a creeping tide. Loon! Invictus! Loon! Invictus! Per ordo! Per ordo! I roll up my helmet. On the ground, every legionnaire without gunpowder rushes for the meager security of our barricade. They look to each other, mouthing the dreaded word. Loon. I stand in the empty centre around a lone family hovercraft. My thirteen golds and forty obsidians cluster around me in their dead armour to make a hedgehog of bristling razors. I wish Alexander were with me. I wish Severa had my back. I wish Ragnar were here, and Orion in the sky. But these are my brothers and sisters too. We toggle the razors so they take on their leanest and longest form, nearly a metre and a half. Not nearly long enough. The low colours gather on our wings, sixty men deep behind the vehicles, some few holding pole arms of metal fence posts or signs, and they shiver in dread as they see what's coming. Even the droning death chant of the obsidians stutters when they hear the sonorous lament of the Initium horn. Once. On a mission for Nero, I had the privilege of witnessing something no low red of Mars had ever seen before. A race in the Hippodrome of Heliopolis. The sun was bright, the streets filled with music, honey wine, and the smell of spiced ginger locust sweets. Out of respect for my patron, the votum allowed me backstage before the initium horn to see the riders preparing. In the shadowy recesses of the underground stables, 
I saw Sunblood stallions for the first time. Until then, I'd only known the horses of the Institute, animals of sixteen hands. They were terrifying enough to my eyes, but they are little more than donkeys compared to Sunbloods. Weighing nearly one ton and twenty-three hands tall, with bone-pale coats and fiery manes, capable of speeds up to eighty kilometers per hour at full gallop, the beasts I saw race were barely horses at all. Monsters, I thought, feeling a kinship with that unnatural bloodline. Beautiful monsters, made for one purpose. The race I watched ended in catastrophe, with the winner's prize stallion biting off the head of a competitor when he came at the winner waving a whip. The gold owners were horrified, but how the crowd cheered. How did I ever think these people would embrace liberty? Now, two, three, four hundred, maybe more, of the most powerful chariot horses that have ever lived have come to war. They rumble into the northern mouth of the Via Triumphia in an avalanche of white muscle and fiery manes and multi-hued festival saddles ridden with terrible grace by the equestrians amongst the prisoners of war, greys and golds. They'll go through us like an anvil through glass. But glass can cut. And if we run, it'll be massacre. Stand fast! I roar at my veterans, conjuring the only trick I have left. Bullets smack into our armor, sending some stumbling. Grenades detonate amongst the horses, sending some screaming. When I give the command, line... Form a line three deep. When I give the command, flat, go flat and hold your razor like this. Trust your weapon. Trust your armor. Stand fast. Gunshots rattle through the plaza, ours and theirs. Men are kicked back from windows and duck on the rooftops from precision shots by Lysander's escorts, dying as they desperately fire down at the horses. Riders spill from saddles. Horses go down with shattered fetlocks and inhuman screams. One takes more than a dozen shots to the neck before it falls full speed into a transport, crumpling the hull and throwing its rider dozens of meters through the air for him to land in a human smear. But the tide does not break. It quickens. The sound of thunder is all, rattling my eardrums filling my gut with dread. Line! My cluster of armoured men unfolds to stand in a thin line at the centre of the formation. Then I see him amongst them, riding at the fore of the charge in white armour, the reins in one hand, a razor in the other, the boy whose grandmother I killed in front of him, the boy I spared for the sake of decency the boy Azure trained and Cassius raised, who looked me in the eye and mocked me with lies, before returning here like a demon to haunt those foolish enough to practice mercy. Frozen in time atop a monstrous steed, bald from radiation, face set not with vanity but grim determination, leaning forward in a saddle that flutters with ribbons of a hundred colours, he looks magnificent. His head snaps back. For an exultant moment I think my snipers have 
put one through his brain. But then his head comes forward, scarlet along the side, his mouth a wide rictus as he lowers himself to his horse, and it explodes forward faster than all the rest. Two more rounds spark off his armor. I tremble in fear as my horizon becomes one of flaring nostrils, frothing muzzles, and trampling hooves. A dozen horses fill my field. Lysander weaves right, around my hedgehog, and toward the frailer wings. In the age of starships, you forget what animals can do to men. Lysander reminds me as he plunges 40,000 kilograms of horsepower through the wings of my line. The sudden acceleration of horse flesh into human bodies creates shearing forces as the momentum of the charge meets the inertia of the internal organs. Men are literally pulverized from the inside out. Organs tear, brains hemorrhage, blood vessels rupture, spines collapse backward. Even as the friction of the corpses slows the horses, they do not stop their killing. Hooves flatten skulls. Teeth of racehorses trained for the conflict of the hippodrome snap off faces. Screams turn to gurgles as men are spun through the blender of hooves, manage to crawl free, only to have their backs broken by the next steed. The horses bear down the center of my line. Flat! I fall backward before the onrushing wave, razor held in both hands, its pommel at my belly button. With the blade that can cut through ten centimeters of star-shell armor, sticking a meter and a half into the air. Fifty-three other armored men do the same, a bare second before the horses trample us. Incandescent explosions of lights in my head. Unreal weight and sound. Hooves slamming into my armor, my helmet. Underbellies, tails, bottoms of bare feet, of boots, as I'm kicked and trampled in an unending stampede. But even horses made of one ton of muscle and bone and blood cannot stomp through armor meant to withstand pulse fire or run through a field of razor blades undaunted. We shred them. Gore, like I've never seen, pours down on us. The screams of dying horses are worse by far than those of men. Yet the herd animals keep coming, running straight over the blades so thin that in the darkness they cannot see them as they sever bones in half and open bellies and muscled chests so cleanly that the horse's momentum carries them like cannonballs past us to spill shrieking and dying into the back of their fellows who crushed our wings. Any Roman ground commander worth his salt would tell you that robbing the velocity from a cavalry charge is the first step to killing it. With the Via Triumphia turned into a charnel house of dying horses and dying men, I stumble to my feet. Blood obscures my eyeslits. A horse on its side with its guts spilling out kicks me so hard in the helmet that my duraglass eye holes finally crack and I go down. Try to stand. My neck is sprained, maybe fractured. Something hits me from behind, and I fall. Through the fragmented vision of my cracked visor, I see a horse coming at me at full gallop. I throw myself to the side just as a gold rider leans sideways off her saddle 
nearly parallel with the ground, and swings her razor down. The blade peels a chunk of metal from the back of my thigh, then skips sideways, and she's passed. I hack blindly at the back legs of the horse, but don't see if I connect. That was Kalindora, the love knight herself. Out of respect for her treatment of our prisoners, I kept her with her men. Now I pay for it. Someone hauls me up. A horse chest hits me from the side and I'm lifted off my feet, kicked under several others and spun around and around until I crawl free and find a wall to guard my back. On my feet, but unable to see, I press my emergency release and rip off my helmet. The sound is unreal, indescribable, like an animal caught in a blender, except it's thousands of us in here. Horses shattering men as they kick in their death throes. Riders crushed underneath or thrown clean to be swallowed by my men. Horses whinnying in the plaza, terrified at the sight. For all we have killed, more than two hundred sunbloods wheel about in the swirling mass of bodies, their riders slashing down, the horses stomping on the unlucky fallen, or breaking through the lines to encircle my other elements, even as their infantry advances through the plaza to pound more meat into the straw. The world takes on a slow, soupy feel. Only a fraction of my force is gold and obsidian. Without armor, without technology, the vast gulf that separates the races becomes measured in the carnage an individual gold can wreck against lesser creatures. Their skin is tougher, their bones and thick skulls like armor. I see one of my greys hit a gold thrown from his horse full on in the back of the head with his rifle, only for the gold to wheel around, and with a single punch break the neck of a man who survived ten years of war. Two reds fire full clips into a gold in a prisoner jumpsuit. He closes in and kills them before stumbling on to kill four more before finally expiring. In my pocket of peace amidst the battle, I feel the coolness of Pax's key on my chest, the weight of my wife's gift in my hand, the memory of all the goodness my men have inside them, how they laugh over cards, how they smile when entering a liberated city for the first time, how they hustle when beside a gold comrade to show they are his equal, how they weep when they see their families at the spaceport. And I watch as they are butchered by the score, and their conviction that all men are created equal is made into a mockery by the physical absurdity of the golds atop their monsters. There is a glee in their killing, a horrid joy teaching this chattel, this jabbering mass of uppity slaves, who their masters are. Bend, bow, break. I see Lysander amidst the fray, blood spattered atop that monstrous horse, youthful and killing with uncommon grace. His bodyguards mill around him, cutting down any who rush his flanks. I see it so clearly. All his life before him, all the worlds on their knees, rejoicing their return supplication as they embrace their chains so long as pretty, manicured hands hold the lead. 
His rise will summon a hideous tide of renewed romantic vigor that will not stop until my people, my wife, my child, are swallowed whole. And then he will smile from the humble throne war-built and say he is their good shepherd. I gave him a choice long ago, a chance to live in peace, but he has returned to war. To see the boy become man scours the empathy in me. Ten years too late, he must die. My snipers no longer fire. Thraxa waits for my signal on the roof. I shape my razor from its long form to the sling blade. The dread monster rises in the belly of me. Laughter spews from between my teeth. I would die for the truth that all men are created equal. But in the kingdom of death, amidst ramparts of bodies and wind all of screams, there is a king, and his name is not Loon. It is Reaper. For the Republic, I scream as I enter the fray. Chapter 85 Lysander Loon Invictus I have never fought low colours hand to hand. I annihilate them. Faces and arms and skulls, scalped by the teeth of sunbloods, swirl around me like so much grotesque confetti. Weapons spark off my greaves. Men fall over themselves to avoid the teeth of my steed, only to be trampled by his hooves. It is all a frenzied blur which I approach with systematic detachment. I would fear losing track of the battle in the strict focus of the mind's eye, so I float along the edges of its shores, breathe, stab, turn, breathe, stab, turn. Rhone and the Praetorians swirl around Kalindora and me. Our force is irresistible. Kalindora, an animating spirit atop her mount, the ranks of the enemy are shattered, but their will is not. It was Kalindora who introduced me to the term Blood Red for the battle frenzy of the Red Clansmen. I believe I see it now. They refuse to yield the boulevard. They heave their bodies against it, forming bulwarks of the dead and living. They slash at our horses' bellies, or fire down from rooftops. But when our attention bears down on them for a single moment, they become mincemeat. My rooftop elements will be pressing forward. My infantry advances at a run through the plaza to support our charge. Soon the enemy will be routed, and we will sweep south to run down their support legions and force those at the spaceport and mound to surrender. As I try to free my horse from a tangle of bodies, I spot a red sniper taking aim from a window above. Roan fires over my shoulder, nailing three rounds into the sniper's centre mass. More snipers provide cover for us from the rubble of the water gardens. Where is he? I shout to Roan. My Praetorians cluster around me, hacking and shooting anyone who comes near. He knew I'd expect him on Triumphia. Without Darrow in captivity, my victory will be incomplete. Rome's flinty eyes search the milling mob. From the horses we can see nothing but the churn of battle. 
Then I spot the signs of his advance from the far side of the triumphia. It is like the coming of a tiger through tall grass. First a rippling in the distance that seems like the wind, then a tunnelling force, an outward swaying of riders, the starting of horses. Men disappear from saddles, sunbloods collapse sideways with horrible wounds, and then, like the tiger's tail, the curved sling blade rises above the stalks as he threshes all in his path. He kills with impossible aggression. I will not repeat past mistakes and rush to meet him. Roan, bring him down, I shout. The Praetorians follow my blade and shoulder their rifles as they stand in the stirrups. Trace around, scream into the mob as Darrow disappears behind a horse. Then a raw-throated cry roars up from Darrow's men. Red rain! Red rain! I look up, just as the stars are obscured by shadows. Reds rain from the sky. They fling themselves off the rooftops that line the Via Triumphia and fall three stories to land amongst us. Our fire team becomes chaos. I slash upward at a shadow, dividing it in two, not an arm's length away, a Praetorian gurgles and jerks his arm as a red man lands on the saddle behind him and soars through his throat. He throws the knife at me. I backhand it away and stab my razor through the Praetorian into the red. A man crashes into me, holding onto my side by the lip of my breastplate. His knife flashes at my face. I duck my head. The knife stabs several times into the crown of my skull but fails to break the bone. I bring my razor into his gut and open his right side. He spills off just as gore squirts into my face as a woman comes down with a block of masonry atop the head of a Praetorian. Carlindora cuts her clean in half and then looks over my head with eyes wide. Tele! An immense force lands on me. Whatever it is, it is heavy enough to make blood of empire reel sideways. I'm flung from my saddle. As I stand, a blur comes at my head from the side. I twist away, and a tremendous impact lifts me clean off my knees and throws me through a window into an apartment atrium. I slide across the floor until the marble stairway jars me to a halt. The wind is knocked from me. I gasp for air, and when I sit up, I am shocked to find that my spine is not broken. A dent, the circumference of a grapefruit, has been made in the side of my breastplate, by the time I stumble to my feet, the doorknob is turning. A hulking shadow steps into the atrium, carrying a huge warhammer. I don't even have to look at her face. Telemanus! I bring my razor up with both hands over my head in Arja's favorite form for obsidians. Bow splitter. It is an easy transition into the branch which cannot snap, the maneuver that killed Ragna Valaris. You killed a pup, she growls. Let's see you handle me. She rushes forward, bellowing her family's name. Without the weight of armor, I'd be faster than that hammer, and might be induced to accept her invitation. But she is stronger, more experienced, and better designed for close-quarters brutality. I could pick her apart, but one loose stone, one slip of the foot, and she'd maul me to death. I make it a running engagement and bolt up the stairs. Little bitch! she screams as she pursues. 
At the top of the stairwell I kick through an apartment door and wait for her thundering steps to come up the stairs. When she reaches the landing, I plunge the razor through the wall. It meets the resistance of armour and pushes through. She roars in surprise. The razor comes back bloody. Her warhammer chases it through the wall, but I'm already in flight. I run through the apartment past a shrieking silver as Thraxa trundles after me. I push a bookshelf down to block her. She shatters through it as I dive through a window back down to the melee on the street. I land on my feet. Telemanus! The window frame shatters as her broad shoulders knock it free of the plaster, and from the debris jumps a demigod and her hammer. Rome leans backward from his saddle and fires a burst at Thraxa as she passes overhead. Three bullets impact in a triangle shape under her armpit, punching through the armor into her ribcage. She lands, just as I dive between the legs of a horse. Her huge hammer crumples the rider and breaks the horse almost clean in half. She teeters over the screaming animal like a weary blacksmith. I thrust my razor over the dying horse at Thraxa's heart. She catches the blade flat between her huge gauntlets and manages to divert it into her belly. She reels me in by pulling the blade deeper. Her mouth opens in a mad laugh, and she lunges to bite off my nose. Then a horse hits us, and we go sprawling over corpses. I manage to keep a hold of my razor. By the time I find Thraxa limping to her feet, two reds drop from a fourth-story ledge to drag her toward a horse. Rome jumps from his own to stand over me with Praetorians. They're in a panic, hauling at me, screaming to get behind them as they shoot. Then I see why. Darrow bulldozes toward me. His army in tatters around him. He breaks through behind a wedge of three armoured obsidians. Rome's men shoot the obsidians, but they stumble into the line, and Darrow explodes out from behind them. His razor passes through a man's teeth and jaw. He looks left, then disappears in a blur. He threw his body back just as Kalindora galloped past on her horse. Still, he's clipped hard enough to spin like a top, but as he falls, his red acrobats shine. No one falls like the Reaper. His whip snakes out and snaps hold of the back fetlock of Kalindora's horse. He's ripped down the boulevard before the greys can shoot him. The horse tramples through a wall of men and clears the other side, then it goes down. Kalindora disappears. Through the mill of bodies I see her gain her feet as Darrow charges her. Their blades spark in an incredible display of fatigued swordsmanship. And then she falls. He hacks down at her four times before turning back to me. A roar comes from behind me, back where the Triumphia meets the plaza. The infantry pour in and the spirit that anchored the rising soldiers to this plot of land finally shatters. In a weird, instantaneous snap, their dogged last stand morphs into mindless hysteria. They flee through the back alleys and down the Triumphia, flowing past Darrow, who stands there watching me. Many drop their weapons or discard their armour to run faster. As happens in all retreats, 
Men are shot through the back, cleaved down from behind, losing far more with their backs turned than when they stood their ground. It is a rout. A trio of horses speeds through the broken army. Thraxa slumps in one saddle. One of the reds who dragged at the safety holds the reins of the third horse as the other sits backward and fires with his rifle. Two shots whiz past my head, close enough to flay open the skin of my scalp. Darrow mounts one of the horses as they pass. He looks back at me as my infantry pours through the plaza down the boulevard and kicks his horse away. I rush to Kalindora as my men push forward. A gold says something braggadocious to me, and I shove past him to find her crawling toward a lamppost so as not to be trampled underfoot. She leaks blood from a long gash down her left side. Her remaining arm is hacked to several pieces. She tries to say something to me. I call for Medici. Several Praetorians rush my way to help stanch the bleeding. I look down the dark boulevard after Darrow. Let him run, Kalindora says. You're no equal. I grip a Praetorian. They all have field medical training. Keep her alive. I grab Kalindora's loyalist razor from the ground and sprint back to Blood of Empire and jump into his saddle to pursue. Roan shouts after me, but I know if I let Darrow slip through my fingers, he will disappear into the city like smoke. The Praetorians try to keep up, but Blood outpaces their tired steeds. Buildings whip past, Retreating men scatter, mobs with torches cheer. Then I catch sight of the trio, galloping south on a quiet stretch of the Via Triumphia, just past the bank of Heliopolis. Reaper! He does not turn. Slave! Somehow through the clatter of hooves, he hears me and wheels his horse around. Thraxa reaches for him and misses. Her horse carries her past. Covered in gore, his sling-blade held at his right side, he looks a devil atop the blood-frothed steed. Darrow brings his sling-blade around to point at me. Drawn by my shout, shadowed faces fill the windows that line the street. With a groaning howl, Darrow accepts my challenge. He kicks his horse's flanks. It springs forward. Blood of empire needs no encouraging. He sees a horse that is less than him, and surges to meet the challenger. For a moment there is nothing in the world but my enemy and me, and the bobbing of the starlit street and the cacophony of horse-hooves on stone. It forms a tunnel of concentrated destiny. I bring my borrowed razor up like a lance in my left hand. In the mill of battle I am not his equal nor am I in the dueling ring, but aristocrats have always held a monopoly on horsemanship. Darrow jerks on his reins, angling to his left as if to pass on my right. Predictable. I anticipate he will swerve to my left at the last moment and toss his sling-blade to the other hand to turn my lance and decapitate me with a passing backhand, or he'll crash our horses together to maim us both but he does not see that I brought Kalindora's razor as well as Alexander's. I clutch Kalindora's out of sight, behind the blood's neck instead of the reins. I steer with my knees, as Atalantia taught me to as a boy. 
as I saw my father ride, when I was not even as tall as his knees. At ten metres, just as Darrow swerves to my left, I swerve right and take my shot. I flick Calindora's razor in an underhand toss. It carries forward and disappears into Darrow's chest. Just as the horses draw even, I swing Alexander's razor with my left arm, digging my toes into the stirrups and driving with my legs to meet his sling blade as we pass. Metal cracks. The world upturns. My arm goes numb. The razor shatters and flies out of my grip. My head slams against the ground as I skid across the street. I stumble up and fall, concussed. The world tips back and forth as I pick up the hilt of my shattered razor and look for Darrow. Somehow, impossibly, he was not unseated. He slumps from his horse, Kalindora's razor protruding through his chest and out his back. Praetorians are galloping toward him down the street. His left arm flops unnaturally at his side as he pulls the horse around and kicks it down an alley to disappear into the city. Roan and the Praetorians rein the horses in as they reach me. A dozen set off after Darrow. My liege, are you wounded? Roan cries. I stare after Darrow. He got him through the chest, a Praetorian says. Razor straight through the heart. He's dead. He has to be. It was his lung, I say. My liege, are you prime? I only just realise my teeth are chattering. Needles of pain shoot up my left arm. Beneath the armour the bones must be shattered from the force of the collision. But lying between the hooves of the Praetorians' horses is a blood-smeared object. I pick it up with my good hand and hold it close to see it better as the street fills with my advancing army. It is the hilt of Darrow's sling blade, and its killing edge lies in shattered pieces upon the stone. Chapter 86 Darrow Legion's End I'm in a nightmare. Lysander's riders hound me through the labyrinth of dark streets. Searing pain digs deep into my chest. I did not see the hidden blade until it was inside me. My teeth chatter together. Each breath froths with blood. I have no weapon. Only my right arm works. My left is shattered along with the sling blade. The gift my wife gave me almost twelve years ago lies upon the ground to be a trophy for Lysander's mantle. One day he will tell his son how he took it, as I told Pax of how I took Octavius. The city itself becomes a devil, and the prisoners surge south. Lysander's sunbloods have broken the other strong points. They trample men in the wide boulevards as his golds flow across the roofs. Few escape the nocturnal predators. His infantry is comprised of all those prisoners we took in the Battle of the Ledon. Over a million join with Heliopolitan mobs to butcher survivors in sunless gardens, underneath the striped awnings of abandoned markets, and on the steps of old amphitheatres littered with refugee trash. The Heliopolitans seem to be killing Tychians as well. 
I escape back to the mound only by virtue of the chaos. My horse's hooves clump over cobbles deep with blood. Ragged survivors from the other strong points pour across the mall toward the steps of our last refuge. There are so few. There is no way to tell if the sacrifice was worth it, if the quarter hour we bought saved any lives at all. The city is lost. Lights glimmer in orbit from Atalantia's arriving ships. My men are fractured. Did Rona make it back to the Morning Star? It will be a tomb. Those at the ships will never reach the tunnels, and on foot, how far could they go? It's up to Colloway to lead them. But lead them to what? It's all ruins. And Atalantia will be coming with real weapons very soon. Thraxer and Red Sniper wait for me at the bottom of the mound steps. Thraxer looks nearly dead herself. Did you get him? she asks. No. The strength holding her up evaporates. She slumps in the saddle and barely manages to follow me up the mound steps. I dismount inside the atrium, where Harnassus is organizing the survivors. Legionnaires rush to help Thraxer down from her horse. It takes four of them. Harnassus rushes to me, slowing when he sees the razor sticking through my chest. Are you? Screwface, I demand. He hasn't returned. I say nothing. They broke through his lines. Only four men have come back. They say they saw him fall to a gold. They were going wild trying to get him, a man adds. They were Fulminata. Fulminata. The legion in which he embedded himself at my command. I hang my head, dazed from my wounds and exhaustion. I don't know if I can move another muscle. My hamstrings and lower back are cramping so bad I have to have men help me out of my armor. I almost pass out lest they take the vambrace off my shattered arm. They leave the breastplate on, for fear of disturbing the razor in my chest. There's a commotion as they take off my dead boots. I stand barefoot in blood to see men stumbling in carrying Screwface. A shout goes up when the men see him pass. He's missing his right leg from the knee down and the skin above his hairline. He's been scalped by a fulminata obsidian. As the medicai tie off the wound, Screw stares at the murals on the ceiling of the antechamber and moans. His eyes are wild and distant. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he murmurs. We tried to hold. We did. They had horses. It was a bloody damn cavalry charge. Mowed us down like wheat. They'll catch the support. Some of them. Horses. Horses. He's in shock, one of the medici says, and then sees the razor in my chest. Sir, no time. It's just a lung. Screwface grabs my good arm. Clown. Pebble, are they safe? Aye, I say. They're safe. They're with Severo. If anyone could make it out, 
It's that ugly bastard. I whispered to the medicus. Will he live? Hopefully not, Thraxa says. She slumped on the statue's pedestal as reds help her out of her armor. She's bleeding badly from the hole Lysander and his men put in her belly. It's over. Here, back home. No shame in it. We gave it a rugged shot. Her hammer is gone. Her reserve razor sits in her lap. But I won't be tortured by that creature. Atalantia will vivisect us. There's only one honorable end to this. I walk over and take her razor. It's not over, I snap. Several hundred weary faces look at me. It is not over, I shout to them. If you can fight, assemble at center. The few able-bodied men assemble. Darrow. Thraxa reaches out her hand for her blade. I'll die my way, you die yours. For loyalty to the end, it is the least I can do. I give the razor back. Tired beyond words, I arrange the able bodies with what remains of our guns to constitute a defense for the mound. As if it will matter when Atalantia comes. A hand settles on my shoulder as I send snipers to the gallery. I wheel around to kill the man, but find Harnassus standing there, shrunken and tired, arms caked to the elbow in blood from the wounded. Darrow, enough. There's nothing more to do. I say nothing, because I know he is right. One of the red snipers I sent after Loon joins us, a nasty wound on the side of his head. Might be able to get you out underground, sir. Alone amongst my men, he seems to think there's still hope. I disabuse him of it. The tunnel entrances are collapsed. The ships are dead. There's nowhere to go. Hearing a noise, I look back to Harnassus. Did you hear that? What? A ship engine. Where are you going? Darrow. It takes me a full two minutes to climb the stairs to the mound's tower. I throw up halfway to the top. The sick is dark with blood. My limbs are cold and trembling. The razor in my chest hurts so bad it's all I can do to focus on breathing as I look out over the city. There is nothing to see in the darkness. No lights break the spell Lysander has summoned. Only the soft, ocean-like sounds of screams. No lights illuminate the sea, no ships over the water. It was my imagination. A phantom hope. Anassas mutters a curse for his aching joints as he joins me, breathing heavily. I'm sorry, he says after a moment. I say nothing. Glerastis did something to the EMP. Built in a back door. We should have seen it. We should have stopped it. I told you we could. I thought we could keep up with him. 
I look over at him at the very moment where the stalwart commander breaks. It is a single shudder, one that comes from the hidden, substantial depths of the man, and reveals for just a moment the insecure child within, as he realizes what he always suspected is true. He treads in waters far too deep. All this time, I shied from his disapproval. In the absence of Dancer, he became my father figure in a way. I didn't even know it until now, because there is nothing like seeing our father shudder. And then he buries the child, and is Harnassus again, hero of the Vox, scowling leader of men. You know the curse of this world? I ask, looking at the body the carver made for me. The greatest gifts were given to the worst of us. Not realizing they are gifts is what makes them the worst, he replies, as the first of Lysander's legions begin to fill the mall below. My men die as they scramble up the steps, as if there were any safety inside with us. You know I envied you. I look over at him. Why him? I ask. Why did Ares choose an arrogant piss-pot miner? and not me. It was pettiness. Pettiness that made the Vox. Pettiness that brought us to this. But your wife believed in the Republic, didn't she? I nod. You didn't. I saw you lose faith, one step at a time, looking to solve it all yourself. That's why I stood in your way. I thought this was what you wanted, a glorious end. Now that it's here, he searches my eyes. If not for the Republic, if not for a hero's end, why? Why keep going? Sometimes a simple question wakes a sleeping answer. I had this picture in my head where I would wake beside Virginia. I'd let her sleep and rise to make coffee, breakfast. And when they woke, my wife and son would find me reading at the kitchen table, or maybe making something out back. That's it, he says. That's it. He bellows a laugh. As insult, the sky begins to glow. Individual friction flames from descending star shells coalesce into a throbbing furnace of light. Well, I imagine one of those friction trails is Atalantia or Ajax. They'll want us alive. He nods. I won't risk being taken in a last charge. It will smell like clothes and melting rubber as the celtex comes in. We'll pass out, then we'll wake up in hell. The reflected light from the friction trails carves across Harnassus's eyes. I'll be damned if I let this be the last thing I see. You shouldn't either. He pauses. I don't think any of my men will be taken prisoner. It would mean something to them, 
if you were with them in the end. When I do not reply, he goes back down the stairs. Arnassus. He pauses and turns. Thank you. For what? Being my conscience. I smile at him. My wife says I sometimes need that. I know it isn't an easy role. But what a role! He laughs before he departs. What a role! I stand alone in the tower, watching the friction trails glow over the city, and wonder if this was not inevitable. If all our hope was nothing more than a feeble religion that could not stand the test of time. I sigh onto the railing and work my good hand through my hair. A tinkle comes from inside my armor. I pull my son's key from within and look down at it and feel an ache. How can something so small mean so much? Even now, when I know I will never see my boy again, I feel as if he were here with me, as if my wife were by my side in these last moments. The world was too cruel to them. I was too cruel in my own way. But there was beauty. For a moment there was real beauty. I look down at the lost city and feel small comfort. I kept looking for hope in the world, expecting the world to supply deliverance if I plucked the right chords, demanding that it supply validation to my labor if I just gave enough effort. But that is not the nature of the world. Its nature is to consume. In time, it will consume us all, and the spheres will spin until they too are consumed when our sun dies. Maybe that is the point of it. Knowing that, though one day darkness will cover all, at least your eyes were open to see moments of light. I pry open my thigh pack and pull out a canister. I pour Dagos's lycos oil into my hands. I would have liked to see home once more before the end. There is a gust of air behind me. Oh, God's brooding again. Some things never change, a voice says. I turn to see a vision from the past. Cassius? Hello, Goodman. Kavak said you might need a hand. Chapter 87 Lysander Ghost The streets run red with blood and echo with screams. Darrow's army is in full rout. Mechanized soldiers from Atalantia's orbital forces leave vapor contrails in the air. Along the Bay of Sirens there is a great slaughter as men flee the city on foot or swim out into the bay only to be microwaved by dropships buzzing over the water. Torch ships descend on the dark spaceport, and in the courtyard, before the mound of Votum, 
thousands upon thousands of freed prisoners of war and mechanized legionnaires fresh to the fray congregate. I watch after Kalindora as she is lifted away by Ash Legion Medicae. The wounds Darrow left her with are gruesome, but not beyond the ability of the trauma wards to mend. She will survive, but I feel a sense of guilt for how I left her there to chase Darrow. I could no more have stopped the bleeding than the Praetorians I left her with, but leave her I did, and there is little nobility in that. There is little nobility to any of this. There is a thump behind me. Roan's hand drifts to his rifle. I turn to see Ajax landing with a cadre of Ashgard. The irony of his leopard helmet slithering back into its collar, when his own iron leopards flow past, bloody and triumphant, my name on their lips, is lost to no one, least of all the insecure boy inside the dreaded man. He abandoned his men before the storm wall of Heliopolis, only to find me here alive, devilish in fifty kilograms of advanced armour and weapons, he looks up as I sit tattered and filthy upon blood of empire, as the courtyard swarms with ragged legionnaires and high-tech soldiers. He takes in my melted face, the steed, the chanting of his own leopards. Whatever he planned to say is concealed within the tight formality. Salve, Lysander. But it is hate in his eyes as if I did all this to mock and spite him and steal his place in Atalantia's bed. For a flicker of a moment he considers whether gunning me down before the army may be worth the cost in the long run, but the arrival of the Votum Peerless stays his hand. I salute his rank. Praetor Grimus, the enemy is split into four groups. The most numerous gather within the Morning Star, where Atlas Aura is being held. I recommend sending a party immediately before they execute him, if they have not already. The next most numerous have taken to the mountains, where they have constructed tunnels. Others hide within the city and sewers. But Darrow is in the mound. He is grievously wounded. By whose hand? Ajax asks. Mine. I pull Darrow's hilt from my saddle and toss it to him. He blinks. Unable to comprehend, the officers around him mirror his disquiet. How? Ajax asks. I lean forward. Which part? Who are you, boy? A false praetor demands. He is the blood of Selenius, Cicero says from behind him. The votum heir is alive and covered with grime from his exploits in the prison break. He stalks up surrounded by a dozen soldiers in tattered prison regalia. His sister is at his side with a flock of glittering knights. As Atalantia's legions take their city, they see another play at hand. The heir returned from the Moor of Chaos, Cicero says. His knights stiffen to attention and salute me. Hail, Loon! The hate in Ajax's eyes darkens, and he shouts for his peerless to assemble. They form a glittering knot and make for the mound. They're trying to seize your glory, Loon, Cicero says. Shall we join them? I look at the dangerous knights around Ajax, likely friends of those I killed in the desert. In the chaos, it would be only too easy for one to slash my spine as they flew past. I think not. 
Four hundred peerless guard of the Votum and Ash legions move on the mound. I sit with my Praetorians in the middle of the square as the doors evaporate. Rhone sulks beside me, ignoring the sweet wine throngs of Heliopolitans bring the soldiers. A party, one half celebration, one half slaughter, rages through the city as it seeks catharsis on the invaders after the long weeks of siege. I imagine the wine will flow alongside the blood for many days yet. Something wrong, Leggett? I ask. You should be the one to take the slave king. The soldiers flood into the mound. We have had our glory today, Praetorian. Let us not drown ourselves in gluttony. The legions know who opened the gates, I say, loud enough for the other Praetorians to hear. They tip their cups of wine and pass burners through the ranks. One thousand grey shock troopers came to me in the desert. Barely three hundred remain. Not one is unwounded. There is a sudden flurry of firing in the mound. I had no doubt Darrow would make a last stand, but with the introduction of advanced weapons to the battle it is a certain affair. One knight kitted by our age is worth a thousand on horse perhaps more. I run my hands along the hilt of his broken blade, and feel confused by what it elicits. He threw me down in the desert. I broke him here. But neither was a true test against the other. The fate of each battle was decided before we met. Mine by the broken chaos of the rain, his by a series of calamities which put him in a corner. I did not beat the reaper. I simply hit him when he was down. I hold no illusions of martial supremacy. My victory was against a broken host and a bedraggled man. The legends of our age die one by one, like autumn leaves. And when they are gone, will we be lesser for their absence? It seems cheap. With his death imminent, the worlds feel emptier, almost as cavernous as they did when Cassius fell. One by one the titans of my youth disappear, and freed from their shadow, I do not feel liberated. I feel bereft. Nothing is permanent. No one escapes. The bill comes at the end, I whisper. Roan asks what I said, but I grow distracted, when gunfire crackles on the mound. Something has happened. I frown and stand up. The milling ranks in the courtyard point upward as rip wings dive from the sky. Wow! We take cover. The light is tremendous as a particle beam sheaves through the legs of the god Helios, who towers over the mound. With a groan he teeters over and crashes down into the sea. By Jove! How does Darrow have electronics? Anything within the city was fried— unless we weren't the only ones to have reinforcements. Sure enough, gold knights tear from the mound in pursuit of a lean, battered ship that emerges from the debris. It rockets low over the ranks of soldiers filling the courtyard. I know that ship. A knight fills the open garage bay. It is not Darrow. His armour is brilliant white, his helmet like that of a rising sun. It retracts to reveal his face, and for a moment our eyes meet. Cassius! The door closes. 
The Archimedes ripples translucent from a cloaking device far more advanced than any technology she possessed when I called her home. She ruptures the air with a sonic boom and races toward the sky, pursued by the Ash Legions. Diomedes lied. Cassius is alive. And Darrow has slipped the noose. My true heart is laid bare, awash with exultation, clouded with confusion, pure with purpose. The war goes on. Chapter 88 Lyria Mercury has fallen. Ulysses is buried on Mars, in a rose garden between Victra's ancestral home and the sea. Across the water, the Julii city of Hippolyte splashes out into the emerald archipelagos. Victra stands just across the grave from me, but looks as distant as her city. She wears only green. I like it far better than mourning black. It reminds me of the emerald hills they say wait for us in the vale. I wish I could take away her pain, but all I can do is stand here and watch her suffer behind that stony face. I know the teeth of this pain wound not with their sharp bite, but with their slow grinding. Her fearsome daughter bends over the grave, whispers something to her brother, and then stands protectively at her mother's side. She knows best. There are no words to soothe the wounded heart of a Julii. Only five attend the funeral. The two Julii, the reaper's son, Volga and me. Our retinue feels pitifully small next to the void his loss has carved, and still I cannot help but feel I do not belong. After Ephraim came, Victra and I went to the fishing village to retrieve her son's body from Maeve's house. Victra washed him herself in Attica, but refused to bury him there. He'll sleep at home, was all she said to me before boarding her ship. And now you sleep, Victra whispers to the grave, and then turns away to walk to the coast. Pax moves to follow. Electra grabs him, and he stops to watch Victra's shoulders shake as she wades into the water and swims out to the sea toward the setting sun. When she is almost out of sight, Electra jerks her head for us to follow her down to the coast. We help her make a fire from a pile of driftwood. Everything inside feels very still as Volga and I sit beside the children in the sand. As soon as the sun is gone, Electra speaks. I am equal parts of my father and mother, but we Julii have a tradition. If family blood spills by your debt, you swim to the sun. You may look back when it is gone. If no light appears on shore to welcome you home, you swim on. She's quiet for a moment. Some never turn to look back. Though Volga weeps soundlessly beside me for Ulysses, in a way she buries two today. She still has not forgiven Pax for asking Ephraim to go back to Sephi. She waited at the landing pads for twelve hours before somehow duping the Julii guards and stealing a ship. I tried to follow, but Victra herself intervened. 
Julii military and aid ships were the first to descend on Olympia three days later, when Far and the Obsidians left it in a heap of rubble and corpses. Even my camp's destruction couldn't prepare me for Olympia. I've never seen so many crows or wild dogs before in all my life. I thought the stench was more than I could bear. But then we found Volga sitting on the steps of the high city, cradling Ephraim. She tried holding him together, but his body fell apart when she stood up. I will never forget the look on her face. It has chiselled away the stone of my heart, leaving a wound of empathy I haven't the ken to mend. There were no witnesses to tell us what happened to that doomed city, save a mad obsidian with both his eyes gouged out. We found him at the base of a throne, swatting at the crows that came too close to a body covered with a cape. Pax and Electra knew the mad obsidian, and the body he protected. He somehow fled the soul guard, who were to take him back to a medical shuttle, and disappeared into the dead city, never to be found. Pax couldn't say who killed Ephraim, but we know who killed Sephi and sacked the city, the same monster who attacked the Pandora. Volsung Far. The name is like a curse to us, a curse that deepens the more Pax explains just what his control of the obsidians might mean for Mars. What city will they sack next? Could the Republic survive the man who took down Julii, Sephi, Valdir and the Valkyrie in just two weeks? I fear Volga's name will soon be added to that list. She wants revenge for Ephraim. It will bring her nothing but more heartache. Though my vengeance on Harmony is sated, I feel no more whole. What peace will I find if even that cannot mend me? I did not like Ephraim, but he was like a father to Volga. I saw how she looked at Victra, the slow smiles when Victra would fire a particularly clever insult her way, her eyes focus on the dark water as she prays under her breath to the All-Mother for Victra to return. She loves far too easily. But her prayers are answered. Six hours after Victra sets out, she returns. Her dress was lost in the sea. Her legs fail her as she stumbles up the beach like a scarred ghost and sits amongst us by the fire. She ignores Pax's offer of his cloak and sits naked until finally taking Electra's riding cape. When her teeth stop their chattering, she looks around at us. One bill is paid. Debts are due. She looks at Electra and Pax. I swore a life oath to both of you the first time I saw you. I renew that oath here and now. Her eyes flick to me and vulgar. To you two, I swear it for the first time. Let your enemies be my enemies. Let your errors be my errors. Let your life be my life. I do not tell lies. If ever you call, House Barker will answer. Me too, for you, Volga says. I agree, I say. Pax leans forward. Technically, you're to say, you are never in my debt, and she will say, 
Electra hits him in the side of the head. He shuts his gob. What will you do now? I ask Victra. Go to your daughters? She still hasn't said where they are. No. I will go to war, she replies. The Pandora may be taken, but the rest of my fleet is intact. Luna has my husband, Mercury my friend, and then I will vanquish the woman who sought my family's demise. Atalantia, Electra murmurs in solidarity. My brothers are on Mercury, I say. You require a ride? Victra asks. No, I'm going to Earth with Volga. Volga looks over in surprise. It hasn't been discussed, but I know where she wants to bury him. Ephraim wouldn't want you getting killed going after them that did him. See his name, she says. You don't know who did it. See his name. Far, Electra answers for me. Ephraim wouldn't want you dying on his accord, I say. You know that. I'm going to go find my nephew, and you're going to bury Ephraim in South Pacifica, like you said he'd want. She does not reply. Victra, I'll need a ship. Can you fly? Victra asks sceptically. I look at Volga. I hope so. In the morning, Volga and I load the coffin containing Ephraim's remains onto a Julii racing ship that Victra has given us for the journey. Victra watches Volga secure the coffin inside. It isn't proper, Victra says, keeping her from her revenge when you have had your own. Haven't you seen enough of that? I ask. Not while Atalantia breathes, not while Far breathes. They cost me my son. You want to lose the rest of your children? Her eyes swivel down to me, and in a second I'm reminded of who she is and who I am. Careful, Blister. This woman owns cities and fleets, but I let her alone out of respect for her loss, more than fear of all her legions and ships might. When it came down to it, she was just a mother on her own. A soul guard rushes up to Victra and whispers something I can't hear. She frowns. Let them in. All of them. It's the Reaper's gory damn brother. What do you think? Five minutes later, ten Republic shuttles crowd the landing pad and the Arch-Governor of Mars walks out. Not Rolo. Somehow, in all this mess, the Vox put him down in a firefight in the Citadel. Instead, it is now Kieran Olykos. He wouldn't even think he was the same species as his brother. He's barely bigger than I am. And his is the kind of face meant for laughter and laurel-tide dances. But he ain't laughing as he strides toward Victra with two hundred sons of Ares at his back. He looks like he's going to puke. The soul guard nod in respect to their allies. I haven't seen that spiked helmet painted on armour in years. It really does chill the blood. The arch-governor greets Victra with a hug and casts a look at Volga before swooping Pax and Electra up as much as he can, them being as big as he is. He garlands them with kisses and then turns back to Victra with a sombre look. Is there some place we could speak in private? 
he asks. She motions him to the shoreline. The two groups of soldiers chat across the lines as Victra and the arch-governor walk along the water. Pax watches intently. What are they saying? Volga asks. My hearing isn't that good, he replies. Nor your judgment, she says point-blank. Pax looks up at her and is about to say something when she turns her back on him. Only eleven years old and already sending men to their deaths. If Volga thought it didn't weigh him down, she'd be dead wrong. He is in agony. Ephraim must have gotten under his skin. He was good at that, wasn't he? There's a shout from Victra at something the arch-governor says. She wheels away from him and stalks back to us. Volga, get in the ship, she says. Her guards look as confused as Volga. The arch-governor catches up. It is this or another Olympia, he calls. Since when do we kneel to monsters, Victra snaps, stalking back toward the tiny man. Since when do we abandon our own? She jams a thumb against her chest. I am Victra Albaca. I do not sacrifice my friends. The reaper's brother does not back down. Heliopolis has fallen. My heart sinks. My brother's. But he's not done. The free legions were slaughtered to a man. More than two million were impaled. My brother is dead. His brother? It's like watching wind move meadow grass. Grown men's knees buckle across the landing pad. The sons of Ares did not know. The soul guard did not know. Victra did not know. He hadn't told her yet. She looks as if she is dying as she glances at Pax. The boy watches with a tremble in his hands. Whatever anger Victra had when she stormed away from the arch-governor crumples. I feel something break inside myself. I don't know what it is. I long ago gave my brothers up for dead. It's for the Reaper, this emptiness. I guess I held some weird belief he couldn't die. Some thought that as long as he lived, the society could never come back. But now it all seems possible. The Reaper is dead. And they have killed something in all of us. By noon, all of Mars will know, the arch-governor says. Victra, my brother is dead. I know Virginia told you she sent a man. He's been dark since he got to Mercury. Whatever happened, there were no survivors, and the heir of Silenius has returned. Victra stiffens. Atalantia will sail on Luna. If the Vox don't see reason, Earth won't be able to hold... It will just be Mars that's left. We can't afford to fight the Obsidians with what's coming. You know that. Something goes unspoken between them. Something they can't let us know. Old debts are coming due. Victra turns to look at Volga. I swore an oath to her. Volga looks around in confusion. What are you looking at her for? I snap. What's going on, Victra? You tell her, if you can stomach it, Victra says to the arch-governor. The man looks tired, but his voice is almost soothing. 
After Volsung Fa left Olympia, with more than half its citizens in chains, he sent a deputation to us. He claims to be the father of Ragnar Valaris. Pax flinches. The arch-governor looks Volga sadly in the eye, and he pledged no further acts of violence toward the Republic and offered to give us the survivors of his massacre and depart Mars. Depart Mars? For what price, I demand? His granddaughter, Victra says. Volga does not move a muscle. I look back and forth between them. Slag off. Volga's mouth moves up and down. But... You were born in a grimace slave kennel, Victra says. You are the product of a dead Terran gladiator named Rothka and a man I fought beside. You are the daughter of Ragnar Volaris, and if this far is telling the truth, you are his only living heir, just as you were Cephi's. What? Electra whispers. Pax closes his eyes in thought. They open just as Volga whispers. No. She looks at the shocked soldiers first, as if they will save her or something, and then to her own hands. I am a freelancer. She looks up. That Ephraim? No, Pax says. He didn't know. I think he's lying. I step in front of her, wishing I had a pistol. Get on the shuttle, Volga. She doesn't move. She looks at Victra for guidance. Get on the shuttle. They won't fire through me, Victra says. You're a freelancer, Volga, the arch-governor calls. So let me put a price on it. If you go to far, he leaves this planet and you save millions of lives. We may beat him if you refuse, but when gold comes after that, Mars will fall in a day. Volga, my brother is gone. We need heroes. That does it. Volga straightens to her full height. I try to push her toward the shuttle, but she settles me with one hand. Lyria, she says. Lyria, promise me you will take Ephraim to South Pacifica and that you will find your family. Don't do this. I am not a slave. It is my choice. You can't. You don't... Ephraim would, she says. He did not raise me to be a bad woman, but he did not raise me to be good either. Fah will bring me close, and he will pay for his evil. She smiles down at me. Thank you for helping me. I have never had a friend so small be so big. She kisses me on the forehead and steps forward. I watch from a tower on Victor's estate as the obsidian ships disappear into the evening sky. They are said to be bound for the asteroid belt, but who can be certain? Pax joins me from below. I'm too disgusted with his republic to look at him. Mars rose up for us against the red hand. Gamma rose up. At just the moment when I was beginning to believe in people, they sent Volga to hell. I remember the first time we met. Pax says after a while. I was presumptuous and wounded you. I would like to ask your forgiveness, because I've done it again. He waits for me to turn. I don't. 
What did you do? Victor came to me and asked some rather peculiar questions, innocently, of course. What she asked, however, led me to believe you may have a parasite. So I hacked and read the doctor's reports on your physical. Your father just died, and you're going through my physical? What? Never seen a pair of tits before? He goes quiet. I recently learned my mother has come back to life. I glance at him. The sovereign's alive. He nods. She's coming here, and has ordered the Republic to summon its strength to Mars, so I believe I should be very industrious until she arrives, especially in matters as curious as this. If you read the report, you know. I knock on my head. Poor thing, went and broke on me. Done's done. Her people can't figure anything, and I don't know how to extract it without killing me. Still got the orb, though, and that's mine. Why would you want it extracted when all it wants is to be repaired, he asks. Isn't it giving you instructions? I don't answer. Even now I feel the urges of the parasite. They heightened near the city. Maybe it's the communication towers. I feel an emotional ache to return home to some place I've never been. But I know that's not me talking, because I don't have a home, and the feeling seems to be coming from a great distance. Then Pax says something I didn't include on the report. Oh, my mountain hyacinth, what shepherds trod upon you with clumsy rustic foot? Now you are a broken seal, a scarlet stain upon the earth, figmentum es. I blink at him. How did you... So I was right. He smiles to himself. I read everything and cross-reference latently, including files only ten people have access to. My mother wanted me to be prepared, and I think I know how to help you. Her spymaster had... relevant information. Wouldn't you like to be someone who could make a difference, Lyria of Lagalos? He looks up after the Obsidian fleet. Did Victra send you? No. She wants to protect you from what you could be, but she only knows that Figment inherited the parasite and gained advantages from it. She has no idea what it really is, or where it comes from. And you do? I have my suspicions. I don't take the bait. My brothers were in Heliopolis. Liam's the only family I have left. Family is more than just blood. I look up after the ships. I helped those girls save themselves. I helped Victra. I helped Volga. The little man is right. I do want to make a difference. What if I told you that I could find Liam easier than you could without leaving a computer? Would you do something for me? I squint at him. Be more specific. He pulls out a thin hollow map of the inner asteroid belt and hands it to me. Have you ever heard of a city called Oculus? Chapter 89 Lysander Triumph of the Long Night
I stand looking out at Heliopolis from the Lady Beatrice. Cassius is alive. I do not know how or why, but somehow he survived the rim's perversion of justice. Diomedes must have had a hand in it. Was it for honour that he was spared, or some nefarious purpose I cannot yet divine? I would ask the man, but he departed Mercury to prepare the rim's entrance into the war long before Heliopolis's liberation. Pyther told me he searched the Ladan for ten days for his sister before departing with a heavy heart. There is a war inside me. I would have given nearly anything to bring Cassius back from death. Anything except this. He died for the rising. Now he fights with them. He is my enemy. I cannot come to terms with it. I believe I am the only one who knows Cassius's hand in the fiasco at the mound. If Atalantia found out, the ramifications for me, for the rim, would be calamitous. Whatever pact Cassius made with the rising earned the Archimedes a boon. Her new engines were faster than any the core ships possessed. Her hull cloaked even more thoroughly than Atalantia's hunting corvettes. I sense Quicksilver's hand at work. Because of my old friend Darrow, Harnassus, Telemannus, and the core of the Howlers managed to either hide on Mercury or slip out of its orbit. Their army was not so fortunate. Those who survived the long night, as they now call it, languish in camps south of the spaceport, pressed into labour to rebuild the planet they helped break. After seeing the ruins of Tyche and northern Helios, I know it will be no short affair. Today is the first day since recapturing Heliopolis that the city does not rattle with sounds of construction. The cranes are quiet in the city sky today, but the streets bubble with noise. Rooftops along the Via Triumphia writhe with colour and jubilation. Mercury has turned out for my triumph. Are you there? I ask the air. Apollonius? No one replies. Whom ever are you talking to? Glerastes crows from the doorway. Just phantoms. Did he ever really exist in the desert? Did he follow me, or was it the imaginings of a sun-leached brain? You look as if you were bound for your own funeral, Glerastes says. My old friend sways up behind me to look out at the city. It may yet be. Oh, please. Do you have it? He hands me the duck's pendant I made for Rhone. I am told there are crescents painted upon every street corner from the Hippodrome to the spaceport. You go too far. Glerastes shrugs. Today he wears silver and white, the colours of my house. On his neck is a gold chain with a great pendant of an eye with a ruby iris. The eye of the society. The greatest award any civilian can receive. Octavia gave it to him long ago, at the unveiling of the water colossus of Tyche. Though Atalantia has not executed him as a traitor yet, neither has she gifted him with a pardon. You're projecting frustration, dear boy. Desist. I am the artist. If it is to be a diva duel, I'll match you cry for cry, and then piss on your pillow and blame it on my dead ocelot. And you'll wonder if I'm insane, and I'll cackle because, yes, yes, I am, and I can get away with anything. 
Atalantia still may kill you, I say. Don't forget. If I were a betting man, which you are, then I would wager all on the proposition that my head is more secure than yours, young loon. After all, I am the best kind of hero. Harmless, and you are the worst. Young with a name. I sigh and lean on the railing with him. I suppose I did ask for theatrics. Yes, dear boy, and right now they're the only thing keeping you alive. That and the furor for the air returned that sweeps through Mercury and the legions. I really don't mind it much at all, but I fear grandmother's wisdom. Will Atalantia break me if she thinks I eclipse her in the mirror? Ajax already tried. With my polite imprisonment in the Lady Beatrice, and Atalantia spurning my requests for an audience, I fear he is pouring poison in his aunt's ear. She will think I did this for my own glory to supplant her. Did I? Glerastes searches my face. Kalindora was asking for you. I know. She said it was important. I say nothing. Kalindora's wounds were mended by the Medicae, but not the poison Darrow's blade slipped into her bloodstream. She is dying, and I do not think I could do what I must were I to look at her in the eye before the triumph. Do you love her? Glerastes asks. I look at him. I left her on the ground to chase Darrow. What a hideous thing to do. I never had the chance, but I believe I would. Then I will find a cure. You're not a medicus. No, but I am a genius. Heavy boots clump the tile. Roan stands in the entry. I am appalled by his armour. It is as black as the space between the stars. Purple bands cover the joints, and on the chest plate is a silver crescent moon inside the pyramid of the society. Dominus, the shuttle has arrived. Where did you get that uniform? I ask. Roan looks suddenly embarrassed. Their old gear is on Venus, Clerastes explains. I had new uniforms made in Naran and shipped here for the occasion. You have to stop. The provocation exists regardless of the accoutrement. I know, I know. You are not the sovereign, nor do you campaign to be, but you are the last blood of Selenius. If Atalantia wants to kill you, she must kill your destiny before the eyes of the worlds. Atlas Aura waits at the grimace shuttle, eyeing the ceremonial dress of my guards. It is a product of chance that he survived the long night. When the power died, his cell went into lockdown. I hear the cue to kill him was a thousand men deep. How he must have smiled at them as they beat at the doors. Roan says it took the man's gorgons four hours to drill into the cell to free him. He looks peculiar groomed and without his desert gear. His fear knight's ceremonial armour is bone-white and perversely etched with screaming children. Unlike most, he does not hide his true vocation behind gilded heraldic symbols. Yet there's an anxiousness to him here in civilization which I did not see in the desert, a sort of alienation from the very thing he sought to protect. Aren't you minorly overqualified for an escort? I ask. He eyes the Praetorians. 
Aren't they minorly overdressed? For a funeral, I ask. Carling Dora has several days yet, he says without pleasure. It says something about Carling Dora that even a man like Atlas would look at his toes considering her death. I know the poison. It is favoured by the Skoogie, slow but thorough. We both know I wasn't speaking of Kalindora. He eyes me with amusement. Well, Loon, I suppose that depends entirely upon you. Our shuttle arrives at the staging area outside the storm wall of Heliopolis. The triumphal arch that was commissioned in haste by Glerastes stands before the open gates. It is the most heterogeneous gathering of any triumph I can remember. Glerastes' servants mill together, gawping at the spectacle as they share cups of wine and receive instructions from the copper planners. Hundreds of the loyalists who answered my call and risked their lives to save their city are here, most are mid-colour, though many lower amongst them. I could not have designed a better message to the people gathered here. You saved your city. You walk with me. Behind them, sprawling out into the desert, are the hundreds of thousands of soldiers captured in Ajax's failed assault on Heliopolis. Their line snakes four kilometres long, gold, grey, obsidian and blue, drink down spirits passed out by reds and browns. Together they sing the ancient hymn battle cry of the Lightbringer. If only Aja could see this, if only my parents could. A buzz goes through the assembly as I walk to my place at the honoured four with Glerastes and Rome. The drunkest of the loyalists shout my name or begin to applaud. A copper Arctarius bustles over to me with a huge data pad and a gaggle of assistants. She greets me with alacrity and guides me to my chariot. It is made of the finest Mercurian onyx, Dominus, a gift from the dictator herself. It is incredibly light compared to most triumphal chariots, and with four of the dictator's Bucephalon geldings to pull, your charioteer will be— I raise a hand. She stops mid-sentence. Of course she favours geldings, Rome whispers. I hide a smile. You expect a self-respecting loony's gold to ride in onyx, like a Venusian sprite? Glerastes replies. Our loon has brought his own chariot. Several Praetorians wheel it forward from one of Glerastes's shuttles. But the colour coordination! The Arctarius squeals before my Praetorians guide her away. Rhone stays to oversee the sunblood's transfer to the white chariot Glerastes had made specially for the event. Pytha watches me from amidst Glerastes's servants. They lower their heads as I approach. My friend held me in her arms for three whole minutes when Atalantia's men delivered her to the estate. She tilts down her eyeshades at me. My liege, she says with a bow. Since I told her Cassius was alive, she has been distant, spending most of her time in Glerastes's gardens. I've decided I'll be sticking around. I'm stunned. It is not what I expected. May I ask why? You need me more than the old boy does. Her eyes dart about at the sycophants watching us. Be ashamed to see you survive the desert, only to die in your sleep. She jerks her head. Now get. The worlds await you, my liege. 
I return to the chariot to see the horses ready to go. Roan pats blood of empire on the neck and begs a word before I mount. His eyes focus on my chest. I merely wanted to say, formally, we failed your family more than once. I, I never thought I would see the Praetorian Guard reclaim its honour, my liege. I never thought I could reclaim my own. But you gave us the opportunity. His eyes find mine. We will not fail you. There's equal parts pride and humility in this man. I wish he knew for a single moment how high the legions hold him in esteem, but if he were capable of knowing, he would not be Rhone T. Flavinius. I worry for him, for what awaits at the end of this triumph. I have seen how easily lives are spent. I do not wish to spend him or the three hundred who survived the Ladan. I put a hand on his shoulder. I believe for some reason that our fates are entwined, Flavinius. I will need you today, tomorrow, and all the days after. Within my household, I grant you the title of ducks. He blinks at me. Ducks, my liege? Are you fit for the task? A ducks is an appointed right hand, with unlimited imperium within a house. His word is my word. It is usually, but not always, reserved for golds, like Aja, who was my grandmother's ducks. It will honour him as he should be honoured, and at the same time show the greys of the legions how I reward loyalty. I have the sneaking suspicion that, as go the greys, so go the legions. After all, they do outnumber my race a thousand to one. As Glerastes would say, never pass up the opportunity to shore up your foundation. I pull the warrant of ducks from my pocket. He lifts his head, and I seal the metal to his forehead. The skin burns as the hawk and crescent moon meld with his flesh and bone. He salutes with tears in his eyes and mounts his horse to follow my chariot. I join Atlas on the chariot. He rides as my dagger shadow, a place of honour and trust. Two things he has not earned in my eyes, but Kalindora is too sick to stand where she ought. He's a good man, Flavinius, he drawls. Be ashamed to waste him. Is that a warning? I ask. Advice, rather. He glances at Clerastes on the horse next to Rhone's. It seems you heed the wrong men. I know how to handle Atalantia. That would make you the first. I lean past Atlas and press a DNA scanner on the side of the chariot. There's a thrum as the reinforced pulse shield flickers into place, distorting the world around and encasing the entirety of the passenger compartment with enough shielding to take a direct hit from a Pelham missile. Atlas chuckles. A promising start. Trumpets signal the beginning of the triumph. A blind white girl walks ahead of my chariot with a flaming torch. With an old white guiding her, she finds her way to the crimson curtain that hides us from the crowd. She pushes the torch into the wool, flames lick upward. When they have consumed all but the topmost remnants of the curtain, my charioteer snaps the reins, and the chariot rolls forward. We are swallowed by noise. 
a street cleared of rubble bisects a sea of humanity for four kilometres, until the street bends to the right. Millions roar on the ground, on the rooftops, trumpets blast, bells clatter on horses. The sound washes over me as we ride forward. An honour guard lines the parade route, not Votum or Ash Legions. I feel the chill of the past. The Praetorians have returned. Thousands of purple and black-clad men and women stand with their rifles shouldered. I glance back at Rhone. He smiles and bellows, Praetorians! Ad lucem! Loon! Invictus! They have returned from their disbandment by the thousands. The fear knight's voice is barely a whisper. Poor choice, young man. Poor choice. I miss the desert. It was simpler there. The route is twelve kilometres long, exactly the length of Selenius's first triumph on the Via Triumphia from Hyperion to the Citadel. After ten minutes, I am exhausted from sensory overload. Flowers cascade, children rush from the crowd to bedeck the honoured with floral wreaths of mountain flowers. The battle cry of the Lightbringer echoes through the city, verse after drunken verse. Military ships hover with snipers to cover the rooftops for signs of terrorists or agitators. Despite the best efforts of society forces to round up all the enemy at the spaceport, it's inevitable that thousands more will have melted into the city. A triumph in this climate is as good as a death sentence, and we all remember Darrow's fated day. But how could I refuse Atalantia? Of course there are snipers. Shots slam into the pulse shield over us and send response teams swarming over rooftops. I almost pity the shooters. With each shot I wonder if it is Darrow's men, or Atalantia's, or someone else's. Who knows? The procession carries through the heart of the city and comes to a halt at the mound of Votum. The statue of Helios still lies fallow in the sea. High upon the steps of the great palace, Atalantia waits, surrounded by the two hundred heads of the prominent remaining houses. The brooding falth killers, vile Asmodeus, Aucathii, and Cicero, our Votum, are all there. The Carthii tap their feet in resentment, as if they have better things to do. The Votum beam at me. I saved their city from extermination. And now they see a chance to escape from under Atalantia's thumb. Remember, you are but a mortal, Atlas whispers into my ear. I hop down from the chariot. As are we all. He frowns as I ascend the steps toward Atalantia. Ajax looms behind her amongst her officers and Olympic knights. She smiles in lovely fashion. Behind that smile is so much malice. She wonders, just as the crowd and the Praetorians and the soldiers wonder, when we come face to face, will I kneel? When I reach the top of the stairs, the crowd goes silent. Atalantia is in pure white. Her shoulder spikes are gold, her necklace, that dreadful pet Hypatia, and two ornate gauntlets of gold cover either hand. Her gold razor is at her side, but I know she looks at the broken sling blade I wear on my right hip. It is the envy of all the legions. Darling, 
I do believe you took me far too literally, she says with a sexual sigh, as she looks at the left half of my face. I said, earn a scar, not become one. I left room for one more, from boy to man, and all it took was a little friction, she replies. If I knew it was that easy, I could have made a man of you myself. She winks and draws her razor. Shall we make it formal? I can practically hear the tension coiling in the parade behind me. I expected my stomach to ravel into knots, but I feel impossibly calm. All men are not created equal. She draws the razor along the right side of my cheekbone, cutting deeper than necessary to give me my peerless scar. So you have proven. She does not return her razor to her hip but watches my blood run along its edge. Ajax stares a hole through my head from amongst her officers. Look how they fawn over you, she whispers of the crowd. Ten years you abandoned them, and now they drool like inebriated sheep. Disgusting. She tilts her head at me. It's funny, isn't it, how some questions continue to be asked, even though they've been answered in every age? My favourite is one you're probably dwelling on right now. Is it better to be feared or loved? We both know the answer to that. Her teeth flash as she glances at Atlas several steps beneath me. Don't we just? I imagine it will be a sniper, I ask. Oh, you did not fence half so well as a child. It's a dreadful red, pulled from the depths of their unholy horde, I thought about doing it myself, she replies. But we've seen the value of martyrs, haven't we? And to think the heir had returned, only for his head to disappear with the flash of a distant muzzle. She leans forward. Good thing he has others to carry the flame in his name. And it will come when I put on the laurel, I say. She coos. Aren't you just the most precocious of creatures? Yet you came anyway? Could I have refused? No, not really. There is an alternative to nepoticide, I say. No, I don't think there is. And you're not technically my nephew anyway. I glance at Ajax. From what I hear, the position is taken. She laughs at my boldness. I wished you no ill. But Ajax did what he did for me because he guards my heart's delight. You see, I will sit on the morning chair. I will become sovereign. I will establish an empire. First there was Loon, then there was Grimace. Much as I love you, darling, my destiny will not be denied, not by those sneaky moonies, not by Darrow or his piglet wife, not by you, but by all means beg. I'd rather not. Then shall we proceed with your assassination? She motions for the white. I hold up a hand for her to stop. The crowd whispers behind us. The legions shift anxiously. Ajax can barely wait another moment for my blood. With a smile made especially for Atalantia, I bend a knee. Ajax stiffens and takes a half-step forward before remembering how many watch. All this I did for you, I say, playing to her vanity. 
Atalantia laughs. Oh, Jove, it is begging, then. She looks away. How vile. All this I did for you, I repeat. Her eyes become interested. This fits her understanding of the world. When you looked at me on the Anihilo, you saw the boy who used to run with Ajax through the Palatine. All I've wanted since my return is to be a man in your eyes. Her suspicion heightens. I don't want to be the sovereign, I say with all honesty. I have no desire for it, no claim on it. It was never meant to be hereditary. It was meant to go to the strongest, and if I tried to take it from you, it would tear gold apart. Her gold gauntlets clink together. You apart, at any rate. I did not beat Darrow. You did. I just pushed the blade home. I glance at the gold families behind her, ignoring Ajax. The carrion birds circle us both. They seek division between us because it feeds their own delusions of ascendance. We must show them unity. Her eyes narrow. What are you proposing? That Grimace and Loon become indivisible, once and for all. Her lips curl into a wary smile. She doesn't even glance back at Ajax. Formally. You are feared. I am loved. What better marriage could one hope for? I ask. To save Heliopolis, I had to undermine her. To undermine her, I made an enemy of her and validated her suspicions and the poison Ajax and the Carthii have likely been putting in her ear. I do not love her, as my parents loved each other, but duty outweighs my heart. This is why I could not look Kalindora in the eye. I knew I would remember how she brought me the Praetorians in the desert, how she helped me when my face was a tattered ruin, but as she left me to the storm to save herself, so I must leave her behind. Two can be a very awkward number, Atalantia says carefully. Not so long as all know who kneels. What a matchmaker you've become. Rim and core, loon and grimace. She ponders the idea. When the old milk bat sets the crown on your head, don't take my hand. That's my answer, and her signal to whatever sniper lurks in the buildings. Whether it is death or life, I will not know until it has happened. There are cheers of relief as we turn together toward the crowd, but the cheers are far too premature. Neither Ajax nor Atlas know what has happened, but down below, Rhone and Glirastes wait for the answer. The white steps forward, her dark face as ancient as her tattered robes. Milky eyes watch me with inhuman distance. Her hands hold a green laurel crown. My heart thuds in my chest, forcing my vision into a tunnel. Son of Luna! I barely hear her voice for the blood in my ears. Today you wear purple, as did the Etruscan kings of old. You join them in history. You join the men who broke the empire of the rising sun, the women who dashed the Atlantic alliance into the sea. You are a conqueror. Accept this laurel as our proclamation of your glory. She sets the laurel on my head. 
Atalantia smiles beside me. I lift my right hand, open as is the way, to grip invisible destiny. Atalantia does not seize it. Peaspera, I say. Ad Astra, roars the human sea of Heliopolis. No bullet finds me. Celebrate, my love, Atalantia whispers, for you have lived before death. In the immortal words of Plautus, let us celebrate the occasion with wine and sweet words. The triumph festivities extend well into the evening. The sounds of rooftop parties and the debauched celebrations of the core golds within the mound itself lap at me as I stand with a cup of wine atop the stairs and watch the brown and red crews sweep the flowers from the Via Triumphia. I smell roses as Atalantia joins me from behind. Her gold gauntlet squeezes my shoulder. Bored of the sycophants already, my love? she asks. On her neck, Hypatia stirs to eye me before returning to her slumber. My grey praetorians in the shadows watch her obsidian ash guard with their hands on their rifles. We have not yet shared news of our pending union. Considering how much wine Ajax has downed, it would be violent timing. As a boy, I always wondered how you put up with them, I say. And as a man? I wonder how you put up with them. You would do wise to make friends. Many have spent their years climbing the ladders to heights upon which they might share wine with a man like the heir of Selenius. If you spurn them, they will hate you. Let them hate me, provided they respect my conduct. I want to show you something. She extends a hand. I glance at my Praetorians. I've held your life in my palm before. I haven't squeezed yet. She smiles innocently. Don't you trust me, my love? I nod to my guards. Tell Rome to enjoy himself. I am with the dictator. Atalantia's shuttle flies us over the desert. As we ascend, I catch sight of two lines of impaled bodies that lead out of the city and into the desert. Reds and golds, Atalantia says. It stretches to the sea they stirred. The others can work or join the line. To react would be to lose respect in her eyes. To contradict would be to make her doubt my acceptance of her supremacy so I remain silent. Her shuttle takes us to the Anihilo. The triumph has spread to its halls. Soldiers toast one another in mess halls and give proclamations that soon the legion eagles will fly over Luna again. Atalantia leads me along by my hand. Her meditation chamber has changed since my arrival. Gone is the garden, replaced by sleek black walls and a white floor. The mural of our family still hangs on the wall. The viewport looks down on drowned Tyche. The waters have receded, but the city is in ruins. Only the water colossus stands equal to its former glory. Atalantia brings me before the viewport. This is our victory, she says. Three days from now, I would like for you to break ground and lead the restoration of Tyche personally. Glirastes will be your master-maker. You will not want for funds. 
I intend to deliver most of your inheritance from my own coffers. Her largesse surprises me. All the worlds will see that what the slave king destroys, the heir of Selenius will rebuild greater than before. I examine her face for some sign of deception and find none, just a deep feline satisfaction. Why? I ask. Because my husband must be loved. She turns her body to me. Her gold gauntlet strokes my burn and slides to cup my head. Her eyes flutter. Her tongue wets her lips as she pulls my mouth to hers. Her teeth glide along my bottom lip, nipping tenderly. She pulls back, sees something in my eyes, to her satisfaction, and then crushes my mouth against hers in hunger. Her tongue probes mine, and the heat of her body presses against me, as a gauntlet strokes my groin. My blood quickens in guilt. I feel light and heavy as my hands explore the taut muscles of her back, sliding down and down and down. I pull away. Ajax will... Ajax is a puppy. She puts a finger to my lips as I try to protest. On your back, love. I find myself obeying, watching in lust, as she removes her jacket and clothes, till she wears nothing but the snake and the gold gauntlets. She cuts off my pants with a small blade that emerges from a finger of the gauntlets. She takes me in her mouth, and I shudder in pleasure as she crawls up my body to put me inside her. She gives a little gasp, her mouth hovering just above mine, and then a devilish smile grows on her lips as she begins to grind back and forth between the drowned city and the mural of our dead family. Chapter 90 Lysander The Love Knight Clerastes has given Kalindora a villa by the sea in which to die. If any doubted the honour of the love knight, one need only look at the quantity and worth of those friends who gathered to see her once more before she passes from this world. Despite the triumph, the air is sombre. I have felt dirty since I awoke with Atalantia, but not too dirty to reject her morning advances. Kalindora's room is littered with tokens of affection, including two golden gauntlets from Atalantia the same gauntlets she wore when we had sex in her meditation room just hours before. A patio ambles down to the waterline, where blue crabs skitter in the surf. It smells not at all like death. Kalindora lies on a humble bed. There are no servants in the room, nor any sign of the immense wealth she inherited as the last eligible member of House Sun. She looks up at me with a wan smile as she sees the flowers I've brought. Where did you find Hemanthus? she whispers. Glerastes knew of a hothouse in Naran that carried them, I say, wondering if, even after showering, I still smell of Atalantia. Of course you remembered. I hold them close so she can smell them. Like home, she says with closed eyes. Put them by the bed for me. She nods to the door. Are they all still swarming? 
about a hundred or so. I say of the well-wishers in the courtyard, there's some good ones in there. Roan came. I saw him. You gave him the ducks? Yes. No one deserves it more. He will guard you well. I only wish I did not have to leave. She looks so weak. Her remaining arm is wrapped in bandages. After Darrow's savagery, it is a wonder she did not lose it. His poison has leached the colour from her face. She is so pale. To remember her in the Palatine, young and so full of promise, and to see her now, it is almost too much. She was the future. Now she will be the past. It isn't right that she dies and all the sycophants and monsters get to live. Don't look at me like that, she says. Like what? Her face tightens. I should say congratulations on your betrothal, I think. It is a political affair, nothing more. You think so? She knows. I feel wicked looking down at her. I should have left the triumph. Come here instead. Her eyelashes flutter in pain as a spasm racks the left side of her face. A bit of drool works its way down her chin. I dab it off with my cloak. Has Ajax called you out yet? Not yet. He will. He won't risk Atalantia's displeasure. He will. Love may give one wings but everything burns when it flies too close to the sun. She looks down at the sheets that cover her dying body. It's funny. You always promise yourself you won't become a cliché. You won't be the person who yammers about their school years with old friends trying to relive the glory. Then you do. You won't be the soldier who doesn't bother learning the names of the fresh Troops, because they won't be there tomorrow. Then you are. You won't give last breath confessions. Then you must. Her smile disappears. Sit down. I take the stool at her bedside. There are things you must know. She looks at the door and takes a small jammer from under her sheets. Her fingers suffer nerve damage and fumble with the controls, so I must help her. The noise outside the room disappears, and the sound of the sea can be heard no more. I have known Atalantia all my life, she says slowly. I've seen her as a courtier and a soldier. She has always had something missing. She was here before you. She looks at the gauntlets. Despite what I did, bringing the Praetorians for you, she held my hand and confessed that she believes you're her missing piece. For a moment I don't think she'll continue. Then with a sigh she forges on. Those were the happiest days for her, you know. When Octavia would let you alone from your lessons, and Atalantia would take you to Hyperion. She does love you, in her way. She thought you were the saddest little boy. We all did. She touches my knee. 
don't take it as a slight. You sold too much to ever truly be a child. You never had a chance to be one, not really. And neither did she. Octavia was hard on her. She was hard on us all. She coughs and blood flecks her lips. She waits as I wipe it away. She was like a poison. I've never heard her utter so much as a single word against my grandmother. Octavia was a hard woman, but she made us what we are. She poisoned us. She was our sovereign. Sovereign, she spits the word. All my life I've served. Octavia, then Magnus, then Atalantia. Everyone sits on that stool and tells me I did it with such honour, and every time I hear it, I want to tear their tongues out. She looks out at the sunlight as if it were the enemy. If you regret you are evil, it is still evil. I've killed old men in their beds, children under the feet of their own horses, mothers who begged me to spare their unborn, all because I was a stupid girl who thought her father looked beautiful in his armour. When he retired, I begged to take his oath to my sovereign. He wept that day. I never knew why till after he died. I thought his oath gave him purpose. He was too honourable to say it imprisoned him. On the day he found freedom, he saw his daughter enslaved. She swallows, reliving the horrors she's done in my family's name. I only want it to be useful. I don't know what to say. Her voice softens. Get them while they're young, she told Magnus once. Get them while they're young. Then you've got them forever. Honour, duty, it's all a lie. By the time you know better, you're too dirty to get out. Octavia poisoned me. She made me fear to be alone so much that I believed only the darkness would want me. Her hand trembles upward to touch my face. Somehow she didn't poison you. Her fingers feel right against my cheek. Not electric like Azalantia's, not rank with guilt, but like they've been missing all my life. I want them to stay forever. I feel safe here. Her touch is not maternal, nor is it hungry, but at this moment I realize she does not see me as boy any longer, but as someone who understands the world as she does. It is already too late. You were always good. You still are. They all thought you were dead, but I didn't. Say what you will of Virginia. She wouldn't let Darrow kill a boy. Sometimes, when I was in a shuttle and all I could hear were the engines, I would think of you. I would see you off somewhere by the sea, living a true life. Falling in love, maybe. Her fingers leave my face. When you stepped onto the Anihilo, it broke my heart. Why should me coming home break your heart? I ask. This is my family. She stares at the door, forgetting me and the sea. I have to tell you something. Something 
that will make you hate me. Something I know will make you do what has to be done. But I'm afraid. I take her hand and surprise her by kissing it. Nothing you can say will make me hate you. She swallows. Your mother. I go cold. What about my mother? She was a reformer. Did you know that? No. Did I? Do I? No, of course you didn't. She saw what Octavia was, how her grip was squeezing tighter and tighter till it would choke our world. She thought the burning of Rhea was an abomination, and she saw how slowly her mother was trying to corrupt you. So with Romulus's father, Rivas, and Nero Augustus, she planned a coup. Lysander, it wasn't outriders or terrorists who killed your mother. It was Octavia who gave the order. How do you, because Atalantia and I, planted the bomb on their shuttle? I stare at her, unable to comprehend. You and Atalantia? Yes. You were her closest friends. Yes, though it broke my heart, I did as my sovereign commanded. My hand slips away from hers. The world shrinks to a very small, very quiet place, as memories and all their weight fall upon me. All the times I sat with my grandmother, dined with her, flew with her, tried to impress her, and she sat there, the old crone, pretending she didn't send my father and my mother smouldering into the sea. All the times Atalantia took me to Heliopolis, held my hand at the opera, squeezed me between her sweating legs. A dark glass slides over the world. I will never be the same. Why can I not remember my mother's face? I ask. Do you remember a chair? I say nothing. Octavia had many monstrous machines, but none so cruel as the chair. She called it pandemonium. With it she could pervert the mind. When she discovered Anastasia's treason, she swore she would erase her from history. She did not succeed in that, but she did steal her from you, Lysander. After your mother died, you were inconsolable. She was a good mother. She loved you more than anything in the world's. Octavia grew jealous. After two weeks in the chair, her work was done, and you didn't cry any more. I wish I did not believe it, but I do. What else could erase the face of a mother from the memory of her only son? I feel myself struggling to breathe. It was not enough to rob me of my childhood, not enough to rob me of my parents. She robbed me of the one thing that is mine, the one thing that no one should ever be able to take away. Did Aja know? No. She nearly broke her oath to Octavia over it. Atalantia didn't bat an eye. She is a monster. Yet I swore an oath to serve Magnus, and when he found he was dying, 
he made me swear an oath to her. Calindora swallows. I am a monster. I know that. I turned my back on the covenants of the Olympics, on my own heart. But I will not die a monster. I won't let her devour you. She cannot sit upon the morning chair. She must not. She would burn the worlds so long as the ashes kneel. I stand, unable to look at Kalindora. I wasn't strong enough to make her stand. But when you came back, I knew it was time. That is why I called the Praetorians. She reaches for my hand. You are the sovereign, the last heir of Selenius, the last hope of gold. And you are good. What are the chances you can repair what Darrow and Octavia broke? Make all this horror be for something. Fix what is broken in our people, Lysander. I know it won't be easy. And I am sorry I cannot be there to help you. Keep Rhone and Atlas close. He loved your father and mother too much for Octavia to ever tell him the truth. So she sent him to the Kuiper, thinking he would never return. He will protect you with his life. I can't take any more. I head for the door. Do your duty, she says. Do your duty, or the world will burn. I leave the room, a hollow avatar of myself, and find Atalantia smiling at me from amidst the golds, waiting to say farewell to the hero. She motions me to come to her, and I do. I smile and laugh beside my lover, the killer of my mother. And later that night, as I sit across from her at supper, as she gloats over the wreck her creatures have made of the Republic's Senate and Darrow's heart, we receive word that Kalindora has died. We attend the spectacle of her son burial on the Anihilo, the honour guard of Praetorians, led by white ceremonial virgins, carries her casket to a burial gun set in the main hangar, which fires her toward the sun. Roan stands at attention. Atalantia weeps. Atlas does not speak. Ajax wavers in rage, almost too drunk to stand as he glares at me with such hatred. It is a wonder he does not call me out then and there, as Atalantia gives the benediction with glassy eyes. That night she sends for me. I have no choice but to go. I find her weeping in her meditation chamber. I console her, and we stare at the mural of our family, at the blurred face of my mother, as Atalantia kisses my neck and whispers in my ear for me to take her pain away and take her to bed. When she is done with me, she turns over to sleep, and I lie there, staring at the ceiling feeling dead inside. Chapter 91 Virginia Salvation or Vengeance Deja Thoris, this is Phobos' command. Your approach, Vector, is prime. Welcome home, our sovereign. 
There is a small vault in my heart where certain words are guarded like fragile artifacts. Family. Home. Love. Son. Husband. Brother. My enemies have cracked the vault open, ransacked it, and defecated on its floor. Home. I don't recognize that word anymore. It has been violated. I have been violated. The corner of my heart was always reserved for my twin, despite all his failings. Now the existence of Lilith's abomination eats at me. The abomination has Severo. Mercury has fallen. My husband is still missing with Cassius, and I have fled to Mars. It was the only choice. Our failure to come together until too late robbed us of any alternatives. I left Severo and Clown and Pebble. I left my husband to die. It was Cassius Kabak sent for him. The man was found in his deep space corvette. The communications equipment had been destroyed, and his ship barely managed to limp back to Mars. The details of his escape from his rim imprisonment are fuzzy at best, but it seems he was spared from execution by one of Romulus's sons. He was secluded in a private estate on Europa, to be released when the war ended. He broke out and stole his ship back to escape. After delivering the news to Kavax, he offered his service to the Republic. I never thought I'd hear that in all my life. I watch out the viewport of the Deja Thoris as forty nimble corvettes form an honor lotus before our fleet and head back to the outer picket line. I don't deserve it. While Cassius plunged into the heart of the enemy for Darrow with only a small strike team, I had an armada, and I ran away. It was the right choice, but those are the ones that age you. Ahead, the blue iron tails of our honor guard wait. Thirty crimson ecliptic guard torchships guide us towards Mars's defensive sphere. First through roving patrols, then a ten-thousand-meter gulf followed by thickets of minefields and light cannon array, then the hunting grounds for attack squadrons of destroyers and torch ships, and finally into the realm of the apex predators, the defense platforms, the dreadnoughts and their battle groups. Mars has rallied for its sovereign. The loyal stand ready, ma'am, Holiday says from my shoulder. But will they be enough, Nakamura? She is not used to hearing doubt in my voice, nor do I often allow it to intrude. But I feel a kinship with the commando that has deepened these last days as our shared dream crumbles around us. She took the news of Ephraim's death stoically, but I know it eats at her. Just as I may be free from the abomination's grasp, but I am yet enslaved by the work undone, the enemies unvanquished, the friends unsaved, and the mistakes I made. Could I have gone for Darrow? Or was the rim waiting to close the trap and pin me against the Ashamada? As ever, Holiday senses my mood. Ma'am, I know you'll think you were only one hundred metres away. Not gonna lie, that will haunt you sure as a fold against a single comet bluff. But they taught, in the Ludus, the surest path between two points ain't always the shortest. I turn on her. You think there's a chance we'll get Severo back? She gives me a grim smile. It's been done before. Victra found my son. I lost her husband, 
No amount of calculus will fix that arithmetic. Yet Victra did not sail on Luna. She respected your orders. She gives a curt nod out the viewport where Mars's moons are coming into sight. I step forward. The full might of the Julii fleet roves around the pincushion city moon of Phobos and the battle moon of Deimos. The Pandora's comforting mass is sorely missed, but Victra's personal fleet is larger even than my own. With her lost child and Severo in captivity, I feared she would run wild. Instead, her trade armada readies for war. Light flares on the Julii Sun dockyard halo as we pass. Hundreds of new ships teem with expedited industry as the workers and automatons race against the doomsday clock. And then we are past the dockyard, and the planet itself looms before us. On Mars, I was born and rode horses at Ishtar. On Mars, my eldest brother bled to death on the Aegean cobbles before Carnus Albalona. And my mother jumped off a cliff. My father and my best friend were killed by my twin. On Mars, I met my husband. But only my son waits below. It seems a lifetime ago that Darrow led my father's reign against our planet. I watched the friction trails bloom from this very bridge. How simple the world seemed then in the tunnel of youth. Could I have really been only nineteen? Can it be wrong to feel nostalgic for a day of blood? Or was it the innocence I missed? before we truly knew what turned the world. The melancholy is scored away by Ruth, as the night side of the planet comes into view. Cimmeria is cloaked in darkness. The obsidian I allowed to seize the continent in hopes they would call it home and defend it with their lives have ravaged it instead. The central cities of Nike, Phoenicia and Olympia are dark. I believed in the obsidians, I believed in Cephi. I was too optimistic. It only took a single man to topple her reign and unleash her people. Now the Obsidian army and fleet are gone, having disappeared mysteriously after Kieran gave Volga over to the father of Ragnar. It seems all this Volsung far wanted was Cephi's army and only half her stores of helium. The rest they left abandoned in containers on the tarmacs as casually as if the containers were filled with surplus dining utensils. What does Nas mean to you, Nakamura? I ask. The Terran hesitates. Hope. And you, my liege? War. I turn on a heel for the hangar. As pit crews prepare Pride 2 for disembarkation, Kavak sits on the hangar floor. He stares out at Mars floating on the other side of the pulse field. Sophocles spools in his lap, watching his master with concern. I set a hand on Kavak's shoulder as I approach. He closes his eyes in a moment of warmth, then looks back at the planet. Daxo loved Mars because she never pretended to be a maiden, he says. The beautiful scarred, he called her. I reply, the beautiful scarred. Kavax loses himself for a moment in the echo. He loved South Pacifica, but he was born here, in Zephyria, where I was born. When he was as high as my knee, I took him as my father once took me, 
through the heartwood, and I showed him the tree that grew from the seed of my father's heart, and his before him. I showed him where mine would be planted, where his would be planted beside his brother's. His voice trails away. Kavax was not able to recover Daxo's body. The Vox cremated the slain senators and mixed them into the sewers so they could not be collected by their kin and brought back to Mars. Pardon me, he says, collecting himself. Sometimes the indignity is more than I can bear. Kavax is no longer the indestructible man who helped raise me. His decline started with Volga's grievous wound to his side, then Thraxa going missing, and finally Daxo's remains floating through the sewers of a moon Kavax hated. He despairs he will lose his remaining daughters, his wife, and his planet. He looks up at me with wet eyes. Must it be here? he asks. It must. I offer a hand to help him rise. With a heavy sigh, the weary family man kisses his pet on the brow, takes my hand, rises, and transforms once more into my father's enforcer, the warrior giant of House Telemanus. Even I feel inclined to shiver, but it is a tragedy to see any man sacrifice his nature for his vocation, much less a man I love so much. To be what we need, what I need, he must go to war again. All his life he waited to pass the reins to his children. Now so few are left. It is not how he thought it would be, but he endures. He puts an arm around my shoulders. There is an evil in us, as there is good, that we do not regret our good as we do our evil. So we know what we are, my daughter. We know what we are. His voice fades his conviction exhausted. So I pull him closer. We know what we are, I reply. He hears the certainty in my voice and straightens to his full height and pulls away. When your father would return to Mars, he would run the iron circle to prove who owned the planet. I am not my father. Not in all ways. That's been proved but sometimes you need to show a little fang. The Iron Circle is an old custom popularised by Selenius. To prove the depth of his dominion over a planet or moon, he would fly his shuttle without escort in a ring around it upon arrival, no matter the political tensions or adversaries at large on it. Take your shot. It was his fucking planet. The custom has gotten quite a few powerful men killed. Sometimes people just can't resist tossing a stone at Goliath and fell out of practice with most households. To do it now, in the wake of the violence Mars has seen, despite the threats at large, is saying no more and no less to the world than look how big my cock is. With the main shuttle Pride One in the hands of the abomination, we leave the hangar of the Deja Thoris in Pride Two. The war shuttle bucks as it descends through atmosphere without its escort of ripwings. Niobe's Fox One joins us starboard. As we perform the iron circle, I sit, rolling my fingers along the rim of my husband's ring. Cassius sent it back to him, and Darrow gave it to me. He gave everything to me he could. I wish I could let him know it was enough. Let Cassius have found him, 
Let me slide into bed with him one last time. Let me feel his warmth again. I need him more now than ever. Mars needs him. All the ships and gun batteries in the world don't make Mars seem safe without the Reaper. My officers in the cabin do their best not to look nervous as we pass over the Amazonian Sea toward war-torn Cimmeria to complete the circle. What will I say to my son when I see him? Pax is neither stupid nor helpless, especially not with Electra at his side. He would not have woken up every day, praying it would finally be the day his mother would save him and make everything right in the world again. No, he would use game theory. He would work the models in his mind until he saw the reasons, the permutations, the tectonic plates in motion. Then he would scheme a way to help me as much as he could. I wonder if Pax realises yet that I raised him to be as much an ally as a son, and if he understands my guilt over that. If he knows, could he still grasp how losing him was like losing a limb? How my love for him goes beyond logic, beyond explanation. Virginia, Kabax whispers at the viewport. Look, I can't muster the energy. Either someone shoots at us or doesn't, I say. The Iron Circle was your idea. Just look. Holiday tries to join Kabax at the viewport. When he won't move, she takes the next viewport down and shatters my officer's grim mood with a throaty laugh. Mom, you'll want to see this. Frowning, I slide open my viewport shade and see a line of fire racing across the dark landscape east of Nike, another flaring west of Phoenicia, and yet another southeast of Olympia itself. To be so visible at this height, the lines must nearly be a hundred kilometres long. As I watch, the lines of fire curve into the shape of a sling blade. Mars endures. Despite the recent violence, no surface fire licks upward at my ship during its passage around the planet. Even I didn't believe we'd complete the Iron Circle without incident. The mood of the officers has changed. The holo cans in the back of the shuttle mumble with beating drums and singing crowds in cities all across Mars. In my shame, it is not the response I would have expected. Mars's zealotry has always been reserved for my husband and his first wife. Kavak sits by the door, tapping his heels, eager to set foot on his home soil again. Holiday watches the holos with a look of love for the planet as it hails Lionheart and the Republic. Clouds embrace the shuttle, and when they pull back, we see the Val Marineris gashing the world with its glittering towers and the glowing green parks and forests that sprawl along the cityscape and crawl up its towering walls. Millions of civilians line the rim of the Great Canyon. Hundreds of thousands of new recruits pour onto the grounds outside what was once my institute, but is now the Pegasus Legion barracks. As we approach Aegea, the ground becomes lost beneath the shifting tides of humanity that gather in the parks and courtyards and main avenues. The Via Triumphia is as clogged as it was on Mars's first Liberation Day. They are all holding something red above their heads. My shuttle sets down between the Republic's victory obelisks that lead the way to the lion stairs. The sounds of the sea humanity that fill the courtyard wash against the shuttle. I see now what they hold above their heads. 
their millions of clenched fists are dipped in red. A great murmur seeps through the crowd as I descend the plank with Kavax and Holiday at my side. They grow silent enough I can hear my boots on the metal plank and then on the marble as I cross the courtyards of victories to the lion steps. Niobe joined us along with the centurions of Pegasus Legion, loyalist Skyhall and house naval captains, and the remaining three widows of Arcos. The drums along the courtyard boom from the labour of red tribal drummers. I ascend the steps quickly when I see my boy waiting at the top of them. He is real. He is alive, just ten metres away. It is as if he has walked through a doorway and come out not as a man, but finally the blueprint of the man he will one day be. He's a hand taller, his cheeks shrunken, new scars on his face. But the real change is in his eyes. The look of childish wonder is gone forever. Now they hold the dullness that marks the passage into wisdom. I wish I could wrap my boy in my arms and hold him until he became part of me again. I would garland him with kisses and apologies and promises. But we are at war, and I am the sovereign, so the mother must wait her turn. Kavak sees my distress and breaks from the procession to scoop my son up in his arms with a madman's laugh. He perches him on his shoulder and crows about the boy who killed a torch ship. I approach the arch-governor. My husband's brother smiles up at me, as charismatic as Darrow, but without even a hint of his brother's violent temperament. Kieran was always demure in private and popular with the crowds. It looks right to see him with the sword of the rising on his hip. Behind him stand the praetors of the Martian legions, the imperators of the ecliptic guard, and the old sons of Ares' commanders, all battle-hardened and clever, if a far cry from those we lost on Mercury. Kieran clears his throat. My sovereign. His voice floats over the crowd. Luna has fallen. The Senate is dissolved. The arch-governors hold planetary imperium. According to the new compact of the Republic, in this time of peril, I exercise my power to grant total imperium to my sovereign. He pulls the sword of the rising from its sheath. It is the battered sling blade of the slave once known as L17L6363, his brother, the very tool Darrow used in the mine of Lycos. Kieran passes it to me. It is heavier than I expected a red could wield. I turn to the crowd beyond the obelisks and thrust the blade in the air. Hail, Libertas, I bellow. Hail, Reaper, echoes the crowd. After I have received my debrief, I find Pack sitting with Holiday in the garden where my brother killed my father twelve years before. The blood has been washed from the stone, but I still see it there. Whatever Pax has told Holiday has her in tears. He presses something into her hand, and she surprises me by kissing his forehead. She salutes as she passes me. Scampering around the edge of the garden, Sophocles salutes her departure with a bark, and weaves through my son's legs in delight to see him again. My old memories of the garden disappear as my boy spots me. I feared he would greet me as I've seen him greet his father. With that cold, scolding remove, but my fears were unfounded. 
All pretense fails between us and we crash together in an embrace. That hollow his absence has made in me is filled. I feel as whole, as warm, as loved and proud as I did the day I first held him in my arms. How many times did my willpower almost break? How many times did I let myself imagine what sinister designs my enemies had in store for him? He has survived. As I pull back from him, I see his father's anger in his eyes, his mother's patience, his own animated curiosity. But he has changed. The sounds of training razors clack through the seaside courtyard at Hippolyte. Victor curses loudly, then barks, Again! Pax sees me hesitate to pass through the fighter's arch. I'm afraid to see my old friend. He takes my hand and steers me clear of the training yard, and together we approach the burial place of Ulysses. Grass has begun to grow over the small mound. The burial stone is wet with the morning rain. This could have been my son. Pax knows my mind and steps closer to me. You were right about Lyria of Largolos, he says. She did have virtue. Without her and Volga, it seems Victra would have been lost. I would like to see her again. Her brother was evacuated by the... He's on the Reynard. I know. I've sent her away. I look at him without surprise. Where to? After Ragnar's daughter, in a manner. I don't understand. She's just a girl. He pauses. Not anymore. We look back to the grave, guilty for speaking over it. Several told me he was having a girl. It seems Victor was waiting to surprise even him. A boy, at last. A chance to make up for his own father's absence. Mother wanted to give him a son death, Electra says. Always fleet of foot, she has grown quieter. I didn't hear her approach. Like Pax, she's grown since I last saw her. But she knew father would want him to visit when he gets back. Electra... Thank you for taking care of my son, I say. Her narrow eyes flick to him. That's his story? No one likes liars, Pax. They flick back to me. They were always hard, but not like they are now. I can see that now all she wants is to grow up so she can kill. It's no longer cute. Whatever the obsidian were feeding you worked. Look how tall you are. She shrugs. Maybe you're just smaller. She bows slightly for her sovereign, then walks away. Pax watches her go with a worried expression. She doesn't like waiting, Pax says. I glance toward the training courtyard. That makes two of us. Wait here. I find Victra in the centre of the courtyard, facing down three of her best knights. I silence my data pad before entering. Even at her peak, three prime opponents would have been one too many. Sweat, lathers, muscular arms swollen with welts. She trains like a woman possessed. Already the curves of motherhood burn away. Practice razors whisper through the air as I walk in. A clutch of sixty peerless stiffen and bow at my arrival. I whisper hello to Victra's youngest daughter, Celine, and the middle child, Calypso. When they hug me, I see their hands are bandaged from training. Sons of Ares practice martial arts along with a bluff on Victra's estate. 
Both parts of House Julii and Barker are preparing for total war. In the square, Victor eliminates one of the knights with a neat thrust to his neck and then receives a sideways slash to her shin and another to her temple from the fastest of the three. The head strike is a killing blow. Blood trickles down Victra's face. She stumbles, growls, returns to the centre of the circle and shouts for them to go again. The knights stop and bow when they see me. Victra casts me an annoyed glance and stalks over to a towel to wipe the blood off her face. I join her there. Does Mars ride for Luna, my sovereign? She asks. You know we can't yet. Then what do you want? Just to speak with... And of what should we speak? Of how they nailed my son to a tree? Of how our Skamani came like fucking monsters out of the ether? Of how you could have saved Darrow but didn't? Victra. Or maybe of how my husband is being tortured by that abomination while you run back home to lick your wounds. She glares down at me. You might think I obeyed your orders. That I mould here out of fidelity to your leadership. No. I am here because without reinforcements my fleet would be massacred by the Vox. Much less if we ran afoul the core. She sticks a finger in my chest. You abandon my husband. Our enemies move uncontested. So, unless Mars is riding for Luna right now, fuck off. She turns back to her practice. The knights look away as I strip off my jacket and unbutton my tunic to my compression bra. Victra, she turns. Her eyes trace the divots Lilith's hatchet left on my stomach and neck and the several hundred punctures the mob gave me on my flanks and arms, and a tension releases from her shoulders. Her love and hate are made of the same passion. I tried, I whisper. Truly. Her eyes search each one of the scars. I now have more than she does. Her heavy hand reaches to clutch my shoulder, and then the bigger woman pulls our foreheads together. If we cannot engineer salvation for our men, then vengeance will suffice, Victra says. I nod against her. My husband would have had it no other way. No matter what they say, Darrow is not dead. He endured for me, and I did not arrive. I will endure now until he does. Victra will have her wrath till her dying breath. I will have my hope. I will make our family whole again. There's a stirring in the courtyard from the knights. A defence-pulsed shield warps the air of Hippolyte, and Pax rushes into the courtyard with his datapad in hand. By the look on his face, I know what it is. Earth has fallen, I whisper. Already, Victor snarls. To whom, I ask. Rim, or... Both, he whispers distantly. Cassius was right. Loon has bridged the divide. Chapter 92 Lysander Graveyard of Tyrants Are you certain you want me to leave you alone out here? Rone's eyes search the warped horizon of the Ladan. Pyther stands behind him before my personal shuttle. Until the wedding, Ajax will look for any opportunity. Ajax is on Earth. It must be done. But, Dominus, 
He looks again at the feast. In the middle of the desert, upon a great dune, two broad couches of purple silk and raw nebula wood lie on either side of a long table, weighed down by a feast to feed twenty. Are you certain this is safe? I don't believe my guest would respect safe. Are you certain he will come? I look out at the desert. The better question is, if he is even real. What do you mean? Never you mind. Come back for me in two hours, I say. If I'm in more than one piece, collect my remains, and fire them into the sun. I hand him a data drop. My will. Glirastes has a copy too. Glirastes, who took the day to scout locations for a new library in Pan, would be furious if he knew that I was out here in the desert, instead of overseeing the rebuilding of Tyche. But despite what he thinks, he needn't know all my affairs. After a hesitation, Roan salutes and enters the shuttle. Pytha remains behind. Do you know what you're doing? she asks. He is not a sane man. Are you afraid of him, Pytha? Yes. So is everyone. She understands as she remembers her advice in the fitting bay of the Anihilo, but she does not like it. Soon the shuttle is out of sight. I sit on one of the couches and sip chilled wine. With Kalindora's revelations, my inner world is in shambles. But the strings of oaths, fidelity and history that conspired to strangle me are cut. I know the rules now, Grandmother. There are none. At last I feel free. Here in the aftermath of the Battle of Mercury, I sense a great horizon of opportunity. The free legions are broken, Darrow is in flight, Luna is run by a madman, Mars trampled by obsidians, Earth fallen to the rim and the society. That sense of insignificance and guilt I permitted Cassius to instill within me has not disappeared, but remains in the back of my mind, as a reminder of the fate one can accept if he lets the mercy of others define him. Darrow's mercy all those years ago, Cassius's mercy in serving as my protector, Kalindora's last testament, all of it rooted in some vain attempt to rekindle honour they long ago sacrificed for one reason or another. The same honour Lorne preached, after painting a legend in blood, the same selfish honour Romulus preserved before abandoning his people at their most dire hour, the same honour that led to my engagement with Atalantia, and let me delude myself into thinking that honour was about personal sacrifice. My grandmother was the most cunning person I ever met, but still she was wrong. She thought there was no place for honour in the world. I cannot agree completely. It was her cruelty that chipped away at the foundation of her power and poisoned all who served her. It is Atalantia's cruelty which makes me pray to people like her. Is it honourable to kill her for my mother? Honourable to thrust us into civil war? Honourable to fulfil my pledge to submit to her every whim? Honourable to be trapped between her legs night after night? so that gold might have unity? I think not. I think, as with all things, honour is best appreciated in moderation.
as is cruelty. After all, there is no crime with a court. The whine of grav-boots disturbs my silence. My guest arrives. He is no figment of my imagination. He is real and dreadful. His Martian armor radiates heat in the sun until he steps into the cool provided by the pulse bubble I have prepared. He looks over the table from beneath the horns of his helm. A mirage of no finer quality has ever graced this wasted tomb to ambition and martial men, he declares through his helmet. Libations of Elysian Red, Terran Bordeaux, Mercurian Soletto, with gustatio of raw oysters, wine-steamed sow's udders, candied pecans, olives, azaroles, and medlars, and juicellum, a mense prime of walnut and herb-stuffed thrush and paschal bell, garlic venison, honey drizzled wild boar stuffed with dried figs, garum sauce, and do mine eyes deceive me? His giant helmet inspects the centerpiece. A hair decorated with the wings of a peacock. No, tis but a noble Pegasus, and not to be forgotten, a mense secunde of loonies iced frise, tactoon, chocolate pecans, and white pudding. He looks up at me, that metal helmet impassive and dreadful. Now this is a sena. A feast fit for a conqueror, a gourmand, a student of Apicius himself, and set before such grandeur. He waves at the desert. Yes, yes, I at last am paid the respect I am due. If I have learned anything, it is that one does not simply summon the Minotaur, I reply. If you would please do me the honour of joining me, I believe we have common interests to discuss. He doffs his helmet and reclines on the couch. His face is that of an evil angel, masculine, suspicious, amused, and tan, from what I assume he considers his vacation in the desert. He peers under the table with mocking eyes. Gelding or stallion, my good man? Were you not there when I was tortured? I ask. I was mocking your union with the fury, not your time with the Gorgons, he says. How well I know the unlimited depths of her voracious appetites, though I hear Ajax has filled the holes my absence has left. Now you seek to do the same. He grins. But yes, I was outside the cave. I waited, listening via my sophisticated drone hardware to the ministrations of the fear knight. I confess... I considered striking when you purloined him for your own purposes. Such opportunity seldom presents itself with that most dangerous game. But the show, oh, the show was far too interesting to interrupt. The flight across the desert will be held forever in amber in the hollows of my mind. He leans forward, very sincere. I do apologize for claiming you lacked theatricality. It is always a pleasure to be wrong. He strokes his purple chest plate. The grapevines of his home in Thessalonica stretch to a horizon gilded with silver sunlight. Alas, my armor died from that infernal electromagnetic pulse. 
I have yet to divine why its shielding failed to that device. I have many questions for Glerastes, many questions to which I must have answers. They can wait. I confess I am surprised to find that you did not go witness the attack on Earth. Most of your quarry were in play. My path to my quarry runs through this moment, he says, and after the ash rain. He looks offended. After a cup of twenty-one Thessalonican Chianti, one does not rinse one's mouth with sangria. I saw thirty million men in mortal conflict. Oh, my need for violent theatre is quite sated. In any matter, it was a pathetic affair. The Vox fleet gazed lazily from their perch above Luna as Atalantia feigned a retreat and led Earth's fleet straight into a rim attack group. The only thing of interest would have been to see the son of Romulus lead his commandos to the surface to lower the shield generators. What a specimen is he! Perhaps we have a new lead on stage. Well, I hope you still have room for theatre of a different sort, I say. A great mechanical groan tears the sky, frightening the dishes and the sand of the dune into frantic palpitations. The sound rushes toward us in a flood of decibels, till it seems that the torrent of it will swallow the dune. And then it is overhead, and Apollonius grins. A great mass blocks the sky, slowly a thin wedge of blue elongates in the darkness, as two vast legs of stone pass through the midday heat. They are but the lowermost extremities of the ancient mass borne aloft by six heavy cargo haulers. The haulers creep across the sky and soon begin to lower their charge. The statue is immense, its face riven by the ravages of desert storms and chipped by the target practice of rising riflemen, sneers at us as if to say, you think yourself worthy. The stone lips of my first ancestor, Selenius Aulun, curl in contempt as he resumes his rightful place under the sun. The haulers release the towing bonds. The sovereign sways. His stone feet sink into the sand. Dust from his recent grave shudders from his shoulders, nose, and the creases of his robe to form a billowing cloak. When the dust clears, he is still and solemn amongst his mighty fellows. Two score sovereigns stand in the desert to form a circle ten kilometres in circumference. It is theatre fit for the Minotaur. He claps his hands like a delighted, monstrous child. In each individual one might find vanity, cruelty, pride, all or any of the excesses and deficiencies of the Homo Aureate, I say, but together they stand for something more than their individual parts. Each was a custodian for his or her time, forming a chain of order that guided the human spirit from the dark ages of war through seven hundred years of expansion and growth. They erred in the end, each small corruption spawning one more evolved and potent until the natural evolution of that corruption induced decay and torpor, and the death of all empires, aristocracy. In that decay how could they not expect a new predator to rise? Darrow, 
Apollonius smiles. My ultimate prey. Indeed, it will not be like them. In their shadow I will create something greater, something stronger, something fairer. But it seems nothing fair is made by fairness. I care nothing for fairness, nor any of your pretentious-minded virtues, he declares with a wave of an armoured hand. They are for simpletons. No morality constrains my limitless mind, save my word. You know what I want, little paramour. Atalantia, Ajax, Atlas, and then Darrow. And the mind's eye, he says with hunger. I can give you that, and the rest, but I need something in return. He leans his huge mass back. Dare I ask, what must I sacrifice upon the altar for my heart's delight? Nothing. His eyes narrow. You have been mistreated, misunderstood, and betrayed. You have watched me suffer the same. We are alike, Apollonius. It seems a pity that we should be so alone. I lean back and sip my wine. May I ask, do you care at all for rule? It bores me, as does this conversation. I know how you will die, Apollonius. Oh, much better. How? You will die the apex predator of this world, having stained it with your legend and the blood of your foes, so that when, in old age, you sit beneath the sycamores of Thessalonica to die, you know you venture into the void not burdened by your conquests, not fettered with responsibility of rule, but light as the ether that binds the heavens as you drink your Thessalonican red and reminisce of the enemies you cut to their knees. He is enchanted. And with whom will I reminisce? The ally who asks for nothing but your blade and cunning mind, who takes the burden of rule from your shoulders and exempts you from fealty, from all oaths, save the one where you gave your word to stand beside him against the worlds. I extend a hand. With a smile he seizes it in his immense gauntlet. His eyes blaze with excitement. To that trembling of the worlds, he whispers. Together we gaze at the graveyard of tyrants. In the days before the rising, the people of Mercury would come to this place and follow the statue's extended arms, which pointed at midnight to Luna, to remind them where power truly resided. When I found the statues, they lay fallow in the dirt, covered with war machines and blood, their arms pointing in all directions. Now no longer a bickering mass in a shared grave, they stand together again. They point together toward a small patch of the sky, where at noon a distant sphere, appearing no larger than a small grain of sand, circles the sun. They point to remind my guest and all of Mercury our task is yet unfinished. They point toward Mars. The End This is Tim Jared Reynolds.
We hope you have enjoyed this production of Dark Age by Pierce Brown. Narrated by John Curlis, Renda Haywood, James Langton, Moira Quirk, and Tim Jared Reynolds. Recorded books are available wherever audiobooks are sold, including audible.com, audiobooks.com, Google Play, Apple iTunes, and in public libraries through RB Digital. Thank you for being a recorded books reader.